Come on, people. We're three days away from the world championships, indoor championships, and Olympic year. Do you want daily podcast from Glasgow? I sure hope so. Sign up for the supporters club today. There's never been a better time to do it. Let's run.com slash subscribe. Welcome to the Let's Run.com Track Talk Podcast. What a week we've got in store. The World Indoor Championships begin in Glasgow, Scotland on Friday. Let's Run.com will have boots on the ground in a matter of hours. Should be a sensational meet. You've got big stars like Grant Holloway, Carsten Warholm, late entry, Mondo Duplantis. You've got head-to-head showdowns like Noah Lyles and Christian Coleman. You've got Yard Goose against Josh Kerr against Salomon Morega in the 3,000 meters. Ellie St. Pierre going for another medal against Laura Muir and Gudolf Sagai in the 3,000. Just going to be a tremendous meet all around. We've got wall to wall coverage. We will preview that on this week's show. We also had NCAA Conference Weekend where there was a world record. Oh, wait, we're being told it wasn't a world record at the SEC Indoor Championships. Christopher Morales-Williams, 44-49 in the 400 meters. We'll discuss that. Could the 19-year-old be one of the next big stars of the event? And then out in Japan, at the Osaka Marathon, a 21-year-old Japanese college kid, Kyoto Hirabayashi, runs 206-18 in his marathon debut. He's six months younger than Nico Young. We'll talk about the insanity out there. Lots to discuss. Should be a fantastic episode. And at the very end, we have a terrific interview with Dakota Lindworm. True underdog story, the embodiment of Let's Run's Creed, where your dreams become reality. She finished third at the Olympic marathon trials in February. She will be heading to Paris in August to represent Team USA. We learn all about her backstory as a hockey goaltender in high school turned... D2 walk-on turned unsponsored post-collegiate turned Puma Pro and U.S. Olympian. It's really an awesome story, awesome interview. So make sure you stay tuned all the way to the end for that one. Guys, fabulous talk with Dakota. I'm not sure I should give you credit. I should give her credit for her story. But I loved it. Can I say it? I have a new favorite runner. She's got a 40-hour-a-week job, and she just made the Olympic team. I thought that was super cool. Also, I mean, there's just points in there where she said, you know, call me stupid. Maybe I should have been embarrassed for believing I could make the Olympics. Well, last time I checked, she's going to the Olympics. She kept the dream alive. I just love it so much. Like, you don't see this really happen very often. So congrats to her. Congrats to everyone at Minnesota Distance Elite. Listen to the interview. And just a heads up, if you are a member of the Let's Run.com Supporters Club, you will have gotten this interview already. We released it for Supporters Club members last week on Friday. So that's one of the perks. If you're not a member of the Supporters Club, 
Join now, letsrun.com slash subscribe. The one other piece of news that broke on Monday, Noah Lyles signed a contract extension with Adidas. They're claiming it's the richest contract in the sport since Usain Bolt. So we'll kind of discuss that claim, what to make of it. Should he be the highest paid athlete? Uh, Rojo's got some thoughts, as you might imagine. But I think we need to start with World Indoors. This no, is well, big- thanks for Thanks for mentioning my name, John. This is Let's Run Advice Columnist Robert Johnson, Distance Guru. Talking for the first time. I don't know if you guys saw it. Yesterday I published the first, you know, there's all, all sorts of advice columns on the internet. Carolyn Hacks, Ann Landers, Jerry Appy. Never seen distance running advice. It now exists in Let's Run. The first coaching column between me and John Kellogg, with me and John Kellogg, is now up on the website. We had to figure out a way to make ourselves relevant. I don't know if you guys saw over the weekend. Well, John was there. Before John and I, John Kellogg and I, Jonathan Galt was there. John Kellogg and I were known as the greatest coaches in Ivy League history, at least part of the greatest dynasty in Ivy League history. Eight outstright Ivy League, eight outright, eight straight outright Ivy League titles. Princeton has now won nine in a row. So it was kind of amazing, though. We won eight in a row, and then we leave and just Princeton. Imagine how many we would have won if we'd stayed. It would have been like 40. But seriously, if you want coaching advice, We'll link to the column in the show notes. It's going to be a fun column. I've been saying I was going to write the column for years. Wanted to wait a few years before the kids had graduated and stuff like that. Now it's been 10 years, but hey, it's up. Hey, so Rojo delivered on a promise. Maybe within the next 10 years, those Let's Run beanies, they will be out there available for people to get. I had some random guy from China contact me about beanies. I don't want to make them in China. I'm trying to make them in another country. But I, I will tell you also, John, I'm on my way to the sub-three-hour marathon. I've now increased my 2024 mileage almost by 200%. But I did run yesterday. I feel great. I haven't done so. Just got, I, seriously, if people, if you're depressed and you're not, and throw away the antidepressants, and just start exercising. And actually, a study came out this week that anti that exercising is just as good as antidepressants. So my mileage is way up. I'm feeling it. Right. So to translate that for our listeners, increasing your mileage by almost 200% means that you ran almost two miles yesterday. Do we really need to get into that and be factual? <laughs> I mean, I, I wasn't saying an, an untruth. I was just making myself sound better than pointing out that I ran one mile on January 1st, 2024, and then 1.75 miles on January, on February 26th, 2024. But you're a correct job. Okay, no, you, that's um, the voice of reason. I just got to make sure I'm holding you accountable, Rojo. Hey, maybe we can go for a run in Glasgow this weekend if we have time. It's going to be busy. Let's talk about that meet. It's going to be fantastic. Lots of stars competing. Robert, what are you most excited to see from this event? Well, let's discuss that now. Because I said one of the columns we have to write is the events we're most looking forward to from like 1 to 10. We just published from 1 to 12, the Americans most likely to medal in the middle distance and distances and least likely to medal. And I haven't formally come up with what I'm most excited about. I guess as a distance-oriented site, it kind of... Does it have to be the men's 3,000 with reigning 
Olympic 10,000 meter champion, Salomon Borrega, reigning world 1500 meter champion, Josh Kerr and native Scott, Americans 343 miler, Yared Nagus, and others. I feel like I have to say that, but you've got Noah Lyles in the 60. You've got Mondo. Last time I was at World Indoors, he set a world record, but in Johnson Brother fashion, I did not see it live. I was in the basement. Walden always misses the hurdle records. I'm not going to miss any world records. Although we could have another 60 hurdle record. We have the world, the woman's 60 hurdle record holder, co-record holder in that event. We have Grant Hallway, the men's 60 hurdle record holder. We have Cole Hawker going for a gold medal. We have Jim Ariki going for a gold medal in her native country, Laura Muir, Goodoff Sagai. John, have you, I told you we'd be writing this column. Have you started to rank them like one to 10? I haven't done a formal ranking, but this podcast has never been particularly formal anyway. So, yeah, you named a bunch of them. I mean, my main takeaway, looking at the entries, I'm just like, this is going to be a great meet for track fans because you've got some events where there's a lot of talent in it. You've got some events where there's just individual brilliance, Ryan Krauser, Mondo Duplantis, Grant Holloway, but that's still fun to watch because there's these big stars competing. And then you've actually got some genuine, you know, head-to-head showdowns like Lyles versus Coleman in the 60. That's going to be tremendous. So I think there's a lot of reasons to get excited for this meet. And is every single star showing up to run it? No, but plenty of them are. Like Warholm is a lost man. I didn't even realize the guy was running an indoor season and suddenly he's in the 400. So that's going to be fun to watch. Femke Bol has been amazing. So she's going to be in the 400 as well. It's just going to be really good. And I think if I had to rank the events, I have to go the men's 3000. Because, again, like you said, reigning world 1500 champ, Olympic 10K champ, Borrega, who is also the reigning champion in this event, and Yara Nagus, one of the greatest talents in American distance running history, going for a gold medal. Like, if he wins, sometimes you win a gold medal at World Indoors, and you don't know quite what to make of it. Like, Chanel Price, no offense to Chanel Price, she won World Indoors in 2014, but we weren't saying, oh my God, Chanel Price, she's like, she's going to win World Outdoors now. But if Yara Nagus shows up and beats Selimon Borrega and Josh Kerr in a 3K, then you're saying, wow, this is like, this is a big deal. He beat some studs, global championship in Scotland. Like, that's a potentially legacy defining win for him. So I'm really excited for that event. Uh, because who knows what's going to happen. There's just a lot of big names, a lot of talent. Well, is there anything that sticks out to you from this meet? Well, he thinks about that. Let me just say, I mean, I, I kind of said it earlier, but like almost every event's insane. Like either great matchups or world record potential. Like we, we, we could see a women's world record in the, we could see a world record in the women's 400, maybe the men's 400 with Warholm, both 60 hurdles, pole vault, for the men, shot put for the men. Krauser, the one hole in his resume is he's never won world indoors. It's just going to be wild. There's two matchups of the meet. I mean, obviously for the casual track fan, it's Lyles versus Coleman. But it doesn't really get any better than that. Somehow this needs to be hyped up, promoted, put on NBC. Wait, does the meet even be on NBC? Probably will be, right? Some of it on Saturday. Can I push back a little bit, Benson? I mean, Coleman's not really relevant to me in the hundred meters as a, as a big time star. Like, wait a minute. 
The same guy who won the Diamond League final last year in the hundred meters. Okay, fair enough. But I, yeah, I, I, Kristen Coleman. I would say two years ago when you had the Olympic champion versus Coleman. Well, I guess Lyles is now the equivalent of the Olympic champion. It's about the same. Yeah, it, it's a big matchup. Yeah, I I actually think two years ago might have been a little bigger just because Jacobs was the Olympic champion and Coleman was coming back from his suspension. So this was like the matchup we didn't get to see in Tokyo and it was happening in Belgrade. This is a little different because we did see Coleman Lyles last year. Coleman, by the way, beat Lyles three out of four times in the 100, but he lost the big one in Budapest. So that's a huge deal. The women's 3,000 is also great. Like Ellie St. Pierre... Laura Muir on home soil. Gudolf Sagai, who's almost broken the world record this year, does have the world record in the 5,000. Jessica Hull. That's going to be a fantastic event. And then the men's 800, there's like nine guys between 145 flat and 145, like nine. So that's not exactly loaded with star power. The big guys when Yonyi and A-Rop aren't running, but you know the 800 is always fun in a global championship. So... Yeah, it should be a tremendous, tremendous event. But for me, let's run distance geek. It's the men's 3,000, like you guys said. Women's 3K is very similar. You got the Scottish, you know, the Scottish great. Laura Muir is not a world champion versus the Olympic champion versus the American Nagus. It just doesn't get any better than that. I'm so excited for this race. We broke it down a lot on... Last week's podcast, I don't think we need to rehash the whole damn race right now, but like, it's going to be an epic clash. Straight final. Well, there is one way you can make this race better. That's if Jakob Ingebrigtsen was running. Because the amount of shit that has been exchanged between no. him and Kerr this offseason, having him come to Scotland to race in this field, that would make this race better. I disagree. I want to see Inger. My only question about Ingebrigtsen is the fifteen hundred. It's not the three thousand. I mean, the drama of him spanking Kerr in the three thousand at home soil would be fun to watch. With a blindfold, right? He'd be required to run this race with a blindfold if he entered it. Yeah. Well, he probably should try to beat him with the blindfold on, since he can't beat him without the blindfold off. So it was interesting that he said last week that he could beat Kerr with a blindfold on, but. Do you guys think if Ingebrigtsen was here, well, he'd probably run both events, right? He usually does at the Euros. He only ran the 1500 oh. in Belgrade in 2022. So, but do you think they would be sure. in the same event or would they duck each other? Wait, we're now going to have a theoretical conversation. If Jakob Ingebrigtsen had actually been healthy and showed up at the championships, would he have run both events where they virtually ducked each other? Let's save that conversation. And I'm glad you guys are actually going to the meet because John's jetting off today. It so sounds like a European vacation. And last I checked, the meet starts on, I guess, Friday. But hopefully you guys can patch things up with Christian Coleman. If anyone sees, can, Robert, can you make sure Noah Lyles doesn't think you're me? Just, I need to get that out there. I think Noah Lyles is well aware of who Robert was. I mean, he gave him a special shout-out in his post-Worlds press conference last year after winning the 100. So he noticed that Robert was sitting next to me when I asked my question. I think he can tell you guys apart. 
I'm not sure, John. I'm pretty bad with the twins. Every time I see the Torres brothers, I still freak out. I will actually admit that is kind of an issue with me because I know Jorge fairly well, but I don't know Ed that well. So, and sometimes they're at the same meets. Usually I can tell like, okay, that's Jorge, but it's always nice. Jorge's quite a friendly guy. So he'll sort of recognize me like, hey, Jonathan. And I'll be like, oh, hey, Jorge. Whereas I don't, I'm not 100% sure I'd be able to tell them apart if I saw them right next to each other. And being an identical twin, like you're, especially when you're a kid, people screw you up all the time. I don't give a shit. Like it doesn't bug me. So, but I'm so freaked out. I just, ooh, which one is that? I don't even, I can't even think straight. Okay. Well, if the twin can't identify other twins, then I feel a little bit better about um, not being 100% always. Enough twin talk. Who wins the 3,000? Make your predictions now. I don't, I don't think it's Nagus. When has he ever won a big race? I hate to say that, but. It's going to be interesting who wants to get in that second position, or do they all try to take it? I mean, we talked about it. Teferit last time took the lead with 600 to go and never gave it up. Borrega. Excuse me, Borrega. And I, I can see him trying to do the same thing. And then are the Milers content to let that happen, thinking that we can roll him in the last 200? But then you don't want to be rolling, trying to roll from third. You'd be trying to rather be rolling from second. I think Josh Carr is going to win, but... I'm not picking against Nagus because he hasn't won a big race. Like, that, I feel like that criticism is just kind of unfair. No one's won a big race until they get in a big, you know, until they w they actually do it, right? You you have to do it at some point. Like Josh Kerr, had he won a big race before he won Worlds last year? No, he'd won the same races that Yard Nagus had won, basically. They won NCAAs when they were in college. So... Nagus actually had won a Diamond League at least before the World Championships last year. Josh Kerr hadn't even won that. So I feel like winning two Diamond Leagues, those are fairly big. He won a U.S. title last year. Um, he's 24 years old. He's only been in one global championship, and it didn't go great for him, but he was also a little sick in Budapest. So I think that's a little bit of an unfair knock, but I also think it helps Kerr and Borrega, both of those guys have been in big races. Borrega has kicked his way to win this race in 2022. He kicked his way to win the Olympics in 2021. Even though he's a 10K guy stepping down, he does have a good change of gears, so I think his kick's going to be dangerous. And Josh Kerr, we know he can get it done on the biggest stage in the sport, and he's in terrific shape. Like He just ran eight flat two mile, so these guys aren't dropping him, and he's got the speed of a 1,500-meter world champion. So that's why I'm going with Kerr more than, you know, Nagus hasn't been, hasn't won a big race. For Nagus, it's just, who, who was it last year? We kept hearing that they were saying all season they were in better shape than they were the year before and they weren't. But I, I keep hearing how he's in better shape, but the results haven't shown it. And, you know, one of my theories was he was so amazing last year. How would he build on that? It's unlikely that you would be just keep getting better and better. Although Kerr, Seems to be getting better and better to me. So I, I think her is the pick here. Although I, I kind of think it would be either way, it's going to be amazing. You get the at the home crowd, he does it. I mean, you know, employee 1.1 and I were in Sopot when I think it was Shazad or whatever however you say his name, John, won the 800. Or did they go 1 2? I can't remember. But when the home crowd, when the home guys do it, it's just so wild and so loud and so exciting. 
Oh yeah, no. The, what I've heard is this is a good venue, and the the fans really get behind it. Shot did not win the eight hundred of that meet. He was second behind Moaman of Ethiopia, but him and Lewandowski were both in it, and I think they were both battling for medals. Lewandowski got DQ'd. Um, so Lewandowski won and then got DQ'd. He got, I'm looking now. He got the bronze and was DQ'd. But I'm sure they were screaming because, you know, they were both going for the win. Shows you how my mind doesn't even remember who won. Okay, so we published an article today that I wrote about counting down America's best medal chances at World Indoors. And I did this exercise last time before Belgrade 2022. My top two picks both ended up meddling. That was Bryce Hopple. And RJ Wilson. He hundred on up, folks. We're not talking sprints, jobs, yep. throws. Right. So I've done it again for 2024. And I'm always interested to hear Robin Weldon's opinions on this. Am I missing something? Am I silly? Well, I don't know if you've read the article yet, but Robert edited it. And I listed, I think there are five guys who have serious, five men or women who have serious medal chances. Um, and I rank them in this order. Hobbs Kessler, five. Bryce Hopple, four. Ellie St. Pierre, three. Cole Hawker, two. Yard Nagoose, one. Robert and Weldon, does that make sense to you guys? Do you have any pushback? Well, before we get to that, let's talk about the people who you discounted their medal chances. And I'll just count them down here. 12, Joe Andrews, 11, Olin Hacker. 10, Emily McKay, 9, Nikki Hiltz, 8, Eddie Wiley, 7, Allie Wilson, 6, Isaiah Harris. Having read your explanations, I'm fine with most of those. What shocked me at the time when I got to them was seeing Nikki Hiltz at only number 9. I feel like Hiltz has been running very well all season, has a great kick. And I'm just like stunned to see her behind, excuse me, to see Hiltz behind Addie Wiley or Wilson. But is it because the event's a lot faster? Like who are the heavy hitters in the women's 1500? That, that's the logic there, Robert, is I agree Hiltz looked good at USA indoors. They got a PB in the two mile at Milrose. Granted, that event's not run very often. But it's just the Ethiopians are so good. You've got two Ethiopians, Fruwaini Hailu and Duriba Welteje, who have run 355 this season. Nikki Hiltz has never run anything close to that in their life. And the third Ethiopian, Burke Hailam, has run 358, which, this again, this season, which is more than a second faster than Hiltz's PB. Last time out in Belgrade, the Ethiopians went 1-2-3 in this event. I think... They probably will do that again this time. And I think they'll work together to make it a fast pace. And if they do that, I just don't think Hiltz is going to be able to hold on. So this was more about who else is in the event and how I expect the race to go. Because like in a vacuum, obviously, Hiltz is running pretty well. But who else is in it besides these three Ethiopians? Because it seems to me that Ethiopia has a plethora of 1,500-meter talent, but normally one of them is lays an egg. Yeah, so actually, outside of it's not very deep outside of them. The next fastest seed time is 4.03 by Georgia Bell of Great Britain. 
I think Nikki Hiltz can run that. Lyndon Hall from Australia, who ran 356 last summer, she is also entered. So she's obviously dangerous. I don't know how the travel go, you know, going Australia to Glasgow. That's a pretty long trip. I'm not sure. I assume she got in pretty, pretty early. She's only run 202 in her two 800 races this year. So she's kind of a wild card in terms of her fitness. I do think if one of those Ethiopians falters, uh, Nikki Hiltz is going to be in position to maybe get that bronze medal. So maybe I should have bumped them up, but I just think the Ethiopians are so much fitter than everyone else. So yeah, I think Hiltz is a little low on that list. Can we give a thumbs down to Kenya? I don't understand this. Like they don't really seem to bring it for world indoors. Like, is it the fact, I think they have a mini rainy season in December. Is it hard to train in Kenya in the winter? Like, I, I don't get it. Ethiopia is always ready to rock and roll indoors. And then Kenya is just sort of AWOL. Like, if you're a manual one money, when you want the, how much money is it for first place? Isn't it like 40 grand or something? Like, they, they don't have good people in any of these events. The last time I can even remember someone good at, at World Indoors from Kenya. I don't even remember the guy's name. This guy was supposed to be the future. He had like the dyed hair. He was in Poland. Caleb Ndiku. Whatever happened to him? Well, he got silver at Worlds that year in the 5,000. He kind of fell off the map after that, but he, he had a good run for a couple of years in there. Yeah, Kenya, it's interesting. You do have a few athletes in there, but not that many. Like Vincent Kater is running. He's probably like, you know, the fourth or best, fourth or fifth best 1500 guy. But there's no Reynold Chariot. There's no Timothy Chariot. There's no Abel Kip saying. Um, and I think part of it also is Ethiopia. I was talking to an agent about this earlier this week. Ethiopia, the federation encourages its athletes to run. And I think there's also sort of the assumption hey, if we name you to this team and you don't run, um, you know, that might ding your chances of being picked for the Olympic team or the world championship team outdoors. So Athletics Kenya is not forcing their hand in the same way and saying, hey, you have to come represent the country. So then it's more up to the athletes being proactive and saying, hey, I really want to do it. And, you know, if it's rainy in Kenya or if they're focusing fully on the Olympics, some of them might not be interested. Like Faith Kip Yegon never runs indoors. So I think indoor track is more Ethiopians are running, interested in running an indoor circuit, and then the Federation also puts more of an emphasis on world indoors. So that's my thinking as to why we don't see as many Kenyans. Okay, so maybe Hiltz should be seven or eight instead of nine. I mean, again, they're in a good position if one of the Ethiopians falters, but you're kind of banking on one of them having a bad race. That's, that's my thinking. What about the top five, Robert? Did you think that's the right order? I kind of went back and forth about Hawker versus Nagoose for the number one spot. And I just think Nagoose, that's a loaded event at the top, but there's like four guys who I think are a cut above and he just needs to beat one of them. So whereas Hawker, I don't know, that that thing goes tactical, who knows? But I think Hawker might actually have a better shot at the gold medal than Nagoose. Do you think that's a fair way of assessing things? Yes. Cole Hawker just destroyed a 348-miler by over a second. Admittedly, the race was at altitude. He's got a great kick. 
and Kerr's not in the race. Ingerbrandt is not in the race. Abel Kipsing's not in the race. Jared Deguis isn't in the race. Of the guys that beat him, of the six guys they beat him in Worlds, only two of them are racing. Gar- Mario Garcia Roma's running. Hawker's not losing in damn. Now, Narv Nordes is in great form. Well, well, great shape. Is he? He, he says he. He says he's in shape. I couldn't tell from the translation if that meant he was fitter than he was this time last year, or fitter overall than he was in 2023. Because remember, he came on strong. He was running a bunch of PRs, and he gets down to 329 at Worlds. But his opening race of the season, he ran 337, got smoked in Lima. So he looked better in the 3K in Madrid last week. But I don't. I. I view him as a more aerobically based. 1500 guy and if his speed isn't right on point which i'm not sure it is uh i like hawker more than him in that race now his you know his closing when he gets in those races he was mowing people down at the end of races worlds and london diamond league last summer but i just don't know if his speed is where it needs to be to beat someone like cole hawker who clearly is firing on all cylinders right now but then Tefera, I think the guy he needs, he needs to worry about is Samuel Tefera. I feel like that's his number one threat in this race, the two-time defending champion from Ethiopia. Correct. Look, I, I think Nordis is in great shape. He said he's in better shape than he was last year. He, the first race was a rust buster, and then he dominated this 3,000 in Madrid, 740, 741. Looks good, but I, I don't expect... I, I know he's got the medal around his neck from outdoors last year, and Hawker doesn't, but... I think in a tactical 1500, I, I like Hawker a lot better. I think he's got a great kick, great change of gears. Oh, I, I, I don't know enough about Nordis, but he told us on the podcast last year he viewed himself as the slowest elite 1500-meter guy in the, in, the, in the world. So tactical 1500 where we don't know that if it's going to be just a flat-out time trial, big benefit to Hawker. I, I think Hawker's going to destroy everybody in this race. So I, big coming out party for Cole. So would you rank him number one over Nagoose in terms of most likely to medal? Well, we've got the big three in the men's 3,000, but who's the fourth best person? Like, I was trying to figure out who was the other Ethiopian entered, and I thought it was going to be, um, I was excited to, to my 17-year-old teen sensation, Biniam Mehari of Ethiopia in there, considering he's the next fastest Ethiopian, 733 this year, but he's running the 1,500. So somehow, I, I don't know, it, it, the other Ethiopian in this race has run. Well, it's getting at Wale. He's run 726. But Wale's not one of those guys where I'm like, oh my God, he's going to destroy him in his kick. He's finished fourth in the steeple three times at Global Championships. He wasn't that great last year. He, I mean, 726, obviously he's in shape, but I just think I don't see him out kicking Yara Nagus. I meant the third Ethiopian. So you got Wally, and then you've got the third Ethiopian of Telehun Haile. He's only run 745. Telehun Haile is the 10th fastest Ethiopian in the year. Somebody's in this race. Literally, he's run 1242 last year. Uh, do I think he's a higher candidate to medal? Yeah, I think Cole Hager's a higher candidate to medal. But they're both really high. Yeah, I, I think both will medal. I think I would say both of their odds are a greater than 50% at meddling. I agree with John. Hawker's the better chance for the gold. I think Nagoose might be the better chance for a medal. I mean, there's no rounds. Nothing can go wrong in the first round. It's a straight final. 
he's got to be the top five unless a disaster happens. The 1500, I don't know. It's indoors. You get really bad positioning. You fall down in the prelim. I could see something crazy happening, but right now lining them up, the fitness I've seen this indoor season, I really like Cole Hawker's chances to win the gold medal. Like, I don't think anyone's better than him in this meet right now. I mean, obviously, Nord Nord Nordas got a medal outdoors, but as you guys said, like his indoor races haven't been amazing. He doesn't have a lot of experience racing indoors. I mean, Cole Hawker is is, is Primed and tested in indoor racing, right? The NCA gives you that. So, yeah, you ran a tactically brilliant race to win USA's. No, the the guy I think could definitely beat him is Samuel Tefera because this guy won in twenty twenty. Sorry, he won in twenty eighteen in Birmingham in a very tactical race. Winning time is three fifty eight there, and then he wins two years ago in Belgrade in a much faster race running down Jakob Ingebrigtsen. He ran 332 to win that race. So he's won in both styles of championships. For some reason, he never does anything indoor, outdoors, but indoors, he's always in shape and always seems to run well. This year, he ran 334 in his only 1500 to win in Torun. And he ran 733 for 3000 in Kazakhstan back in January. So the only blotch on his resume here is he's, he ran 746. He got well beaten in, in Livin for 3,000, his most recent race. But that was also four days after he won in Torun. So he's very dangerous. I could see him beating Hawker. And then the other guy, I mentioned him on the podcast last weekend. I think you need to be cognizant of Jordy Beamish. This guy has an amazing close. He beat Cole Hawker at Milrose in the two mile in 2022. He barely lost to him in the two-mile at Milrose this year, and that was after Beamish kicked a lap early. So he's someone, if Cole Hawk hasn't shaken him, I don't think you can discount this guy. And your logic, the logic I was told last week was, what has this guy ever done? Like, has he ever won anything in the 1500 a mile? And I said he won the 2019 NCAA indoor mile title. And you guys kind of laughed. So like, NCAA indoors, what does that mean? Well, let me just share with you some recent history. The 2021 NCAA Indoor Mile Champion was a guy by the name of Cole Hawker, who ended up finishing sixth at the Olympic Games that year. The 2022 NCAA Indoor Mile Champion was Mario Garcia Romo, who ended up finishing fourth at the World Championships that year. So, okay, granted, the 2023 NCAA Indoor Champion, Luke Hauser, didn't do anything at USA's, but... I think you guys are kind of underrating how impressive it is to win an NCAA mile title these days. So the fact that Beamish did it and he did it in a tactical race indoors, I'm giving him some credit for that. I do think he's a guy to watch. I, I think I would pick Hawker over him, but you got to keep your eye on that guy. As I said on a previous podcast, I'm a huge Jordy Beamish fan right now. He's raised his level. I think he can medal in the steeple. He needs to learn how to race. You cannot... Maybe metal. You will not win this race coming from way off it. If it, I just don't think it's going to happen. I did praise, you know, that NCA running teaches you good tactics, but this guy's tactics are not the tactics of someone who wants to win a race. He needs to learn that. He needs to be at this level to win a race. There's not a lot of room for error. His kick is unbelievable, but 
you can't just be sitting back there in like seventh place and then you're going to mow down the whole field on the final lap of the NCAA, of the world championship indoors. So I think more likely it'll be a humbling experience for him. But the fact we're even considering Jordy Beamish, who his 1500 PB isn't even that fast for the gold medal. That shows how far he's come. Well, remember this guy never broke. He had never broken four when he won the NCAA mile. I think he won it in 406, which was a PB at the time. It's a little misleading. He got enough an altitude conversion. Like clearly he was capable of breaking four, but I always found that was an interesting stat. Yeah, this, John, can I just take back anything I said? His PB is 336. 336. He's now winning. Not happening. What sort of odds you want to place the bet right now? 20, would you take 20 to 1? 20 to 1? You're what? acting like he's a sure lock. Also, I'm thinking not, like no, two I'm ones. not. I'm saying the guy could. I'm saying he's someone to be aware of. What, what, is, what is fair? 10 to 1? 15 to 1? I, I said I'm a fan. I'm, I'm, I'm very intrigued by him. Uh, so you won't put your money where you I don't want to give you. So that's sort of where I'm at. Okay. I'm very intrigued to watch how this race. I just want to be on the right. Like, I, I think it's a fair criticism, Weldon. And I think he's his style is better suited to running to running for a medal as opposed to running for a win for the win. But you know, if he's up there at the bell, I'm going to be keeping an eye on that guy. Oh, any maybe can some sports put in the U.S. please put some betting on this damn thing? We need to tweet out. Maybe we'll have to have Bovada do it again, but. You guys will be there. I assume they have betting shops in, in Glasgow. You guys could probably put a few. Do you use the word quid in, in Scotland, John? Is that still proper up there? I assume so. I mean, quid is for the, the British pound. They use British pounds in Scotland. So, Can we talk a little about the women's 3,000? I mean, you got Segay, who's my gold medalist. American Ellie St. Pierre medal last time is in a great, great shape. You got Hirat Meshesha, who's running quite well for Ethiopia. She won bronze last time in the 1500. She's run 828 and 356 this year. Laura Muir, hometown favorite. And Kenya actually has entered someone of note in this race, Beatrice Yipkowicz. And we've also got Lemlem Hailu, who is the reigning champion, but has only run one race this year in DNF. So she's sort of a wild card, but certainly has the talent to do something special. So yeah, this race is going to be great, Robert, because Ellie St. Pierre medal two years ago, and that wasn't like some fluke medal. Like she beat some very good people. She beat um, Edgegayu Tai from Ethiopia who medaled at Worlds last year in the 10K and has run like 14-14, you know, I think if Ellie St. Pierre runs her best race, she probably does medal, but there's also a scenario it's very no. very easy to see her getting left, left off the podium because Meshesha has run in the 820s and has a 354 PB outdoors. Jessica Hull already beat Ellie St. Pierre in a 3K earlier this season. And Laura, like, who do I think at their best would win in a 3K, Laura Muir or St. Pierre? I think I'd go Muir. So... So then you just self-contradicted herself. If Ellie well, St. No, Pierre so runs her best race, she doesn't medal because she gets beat. If, if if the people run their best race, she loses to the two Ethiopians and Laura Muir at a minimum and maybe but somebody else. I don't think 
the I think the chances of all three of them or all four of them, and like I'm just handing the gold medal to Sagai like you are. I don't see a way she gets beaten. But of the other women, I think if Ellie St. Pierre runs her best race, I don't think that Hull, Mashesha, and Muir all run their best race in the same race. I think it's good enough to beat like one or two of them if they have like a A minus B plus day. All right, enough world indoors talk. Join the supporters club today. Get nightly podcast from Glasgow. Let's run.com slash subscribe. Comes out yesterday. You don't normally see this. We get a press release from Mark Wetmore, the agents, Global Athletics, saying Adidas and Noah Lyles have agreed to extend their contract to the end of the decade. And then there was a line in this press release that says, this is the richest contract in the sport of track and field since the retirement of Usain Bolt. So normally contracts, the values are undisclosed, and they still are undisclosed here, but I, this was kind of weird to me. I'm like, okay, if it's undisclosed contracts, how do we know this is the richest contract since Usain Bolt? And I had two thoughts on this. One, well, not two thoughts. I, I just thought this was weird, and I'm like, why are they doing this? And I wasn't sure who wanted this out there. Is it Mark Wetmore because it makes him look good? Hey, I've signed this great deal. Or is it Noah Lyles? It makes him look like a big deal, a star, money. For some reason, and I don't know if this is the worldwide or just an American thing, but people like give more respect to people who have more money. So it makes him look like a bigger star if, if you can put, put in the same name as Usain Bolt. So um, what would you guys think of this? Yeah, I thought it was interesting. It was kind of reminded me, like, we do occasionally see this sort of stuff. It's quite rare for a contract extension to be announced, but Usain Bolt, that his contract and extensions would be announced. Those were news stories. So I feel like, I, I asked Mark Wetmore, I got him on the phone the other day, and I said, hey, um, why did you guys even announce this? And he said it was something Noah wanted to do. He thought it was good for the sport, and Adidas was fine with him doing it. So I think it is like Noah likes to bring attention to himself and the sport. And by getting this out there, it's got people talking about it. It's got people talking about his sponsor, which is he's fulfilling his obligation there. And it's more like it's something that makes track feel like a real pro sport. Is like we talk about contract extensions all the time in football or basketball and baseball. And okay, we don't have the dollar value, which would make it feel like even more of a real sport, but we at least have some element of that. But when we talk about it, football and basketball, we're talking about their actual team contract. Nobody knows what Tom Brady's... Maybe NBA, you hear about their shoe deals sometimes, but like, does Lamar Jackson, like, what shoe does he even have? He's you know, Oh, it is a little different, but because also the team contract has salary cap ramifications in these sports, but we don't have pro track teams. So this is the closest we've got is their shoe deal is like kind of their team. Um, but the team doesn't need to disclose it because it's not like they have a salary cap or anything like that. So good for Noah. But if you guys think this is anywhere in the ballpark of Usain Bolt, you're crazy. It could be the biggest contract since then. I mean, this guy's picked to be, well, he's picked for the last Olympics too, to be sort of the face of American sprinting at the Olympics, at least on the male side. You have a home Olympics in 2028. They might take the bet. We're going to lock him down at 
you know, it's a gamble on both sides. He can get some security for a few years, you know, take some of the risk off the table. Because what if it doesn't go well this year? I'm sure there's still performance bonuses. But Usain Bolt was the biggest crossover star in the history of the sport. Noah Lyles right now isn't even close to that level. So both of those things could be true. I mean, Usain Bolt could have been getting paid multiples more than this contract is. Right. So Bolt's last deal, Reuters did report on it when he signed it in 2013. It was a four-year deal, 2014 through 2017, and they reported it was around $10 million per year. I don't think Lyles is making anything close to this, but I think he's making a significant amount of money. How much? I mean, part of the thing is they make they make this claim richest. They don't say, is it richest in terms of total value? Because this is a contract they said through the end of the decade. That's through the end of 2029. So that's a pretty lengthy deal. What do they mean richest in terms of average annual salary? So we don't totally know the details on that. But I texted another agent, not Mark Wetmore, yesterday. I said, how much do you think this was worth? And they said $3 million a year was that person's guess. Looking at some of the other contracts we've had, like Sidney McLaughlin, Lavroni, when we did our agents poll of how much the top stars were making, this was back in 2018. She hadn't signed with New Balance yet, but the average guess from the six agents we pulled for that story was 1.725 million. So I would have to think the top of the top of the line athletes right now in the sport are probably making around two million. There's probably only one or two or three of them. And if Lyles is supposed to be higher than that, I think that would put him somewhere in 2.53 million. Uh, range that would be my guess for an annual contract, but again, we don't know the specific numbers. It's I don't think it's close to ten million. Remember, we do, we do know what the Norwegians make. Warholm biggest year made one point six million according to his tax returns. Though that also would include other sponsors outside of his primary shoe contract and maybe some bonuses, like you know, some prize money from Norway as well. It's not, that's not just his shoe contract. But that also is after his expenses. Ingebrigtsen was just over a million dollars. I posted on the start of thread on the message board. You guys can chime in as well. I said, how do we know this is the richest since bold? Yeah, we've already talked about that. If you're a shoe exec, which track and field athletes would you pay more than Lyles, if any? And is it fair that he would be the highest paid athlete in track and field, considering he's never won Olympic gold and he's never set a world record. In terms of who you pay more, let me start with that one. I mean, obviously, Arian Knighton and Lutzeli Taboga deserve more because they're going to be winning the gold medal this year. Okay, that was kind of a joke. But actually, it's kind of interesting here. I think you pay Noah Lyles. I, I think your thing about $3 million sounds about right. Like, if, if Noah does win the 100 and 200, and, and sort of crosses over, you know, and he's American. I, I still don't think he's ever going to be bold because I used to think it was really forced with Noah, him trying to be a star, him walking in, painting his nails. But now I feel like he's authentically enjoying, like he likes to do the walk-in, the clothes. It's not as forced as it used to seem to me. Maybe I'm just used to it. And he would be an American, but he's never going to be as big as bold. But also if he, if, if he, if he flames out and, and these other Sprinters surpass him, then it's, you know, at least he's got some money. But in terms of who deserves more, 
I mean, obviously, there's a lot of athletes that are much more accomplished than him. Not a lot. I mean, this guy's won three straight world titles, and he double he got triple gold in Budapest. Like, it's not a long list, Robert. And he's in his prime right now. Some of these athletes you're talking, you have listed, are like past their prime. Well, right. Looking ahead for the next five years, I guess you're saying. But I mean, yeah, Sydney McLaughlin or Lavrone is an Olympic. Go, she runs a gold world record every time she ever runs. She's American. She's beautiful, and she's someone you could say. I mean, obviously Ryan Krauser, he's a field event. Shelly Ann Fraser Price and Elaine Thompson Hara, hurrah, have, have accomplished more. Elliot Kipchoge is is much better known worldwide. He's the banister of the marathon. He's made a ton of money for Nike because of the shoes. I mean, he's he's made everyone realize how important the shoes are. I mean, good off Stefan Hassan, you, you could argue now. I'm not saying Jakob Ingenbritton. Uh, uh, oh, also, Karsten Warholm, Mondo. What about Faith Kipiagon? I mean, the, most of those people are, are more accomplished than, than Noah Lyles, right? But this is different for me for two reasons. One, the event that he's in. The men's 100 and 200. That's the premier event in all of track and field. Two, he's American. So I think you have to judge the Noah Lyles contract differently than you would, you know, yeah, Faith, Faith Kip Yegon's more accomplished or even a Warholm or even Sidney Malkin who's an American. But she's in the 400 hurdles. That's not a marquee event in track and field. Now, if she does something unprecedented like the double, the 400, 400 hurdles doubles, then maybe that kind of puts Sidney into the Michael Johnson category of American stars that transcend just track. But if she still runs her sort of less marquee event, then I, I see why you pay, pay no allows more. So the analogy I have is like, you, you've got to pay these athletes different values based on the events they're in. Just like in the NFL, you don't pay a tight end that much. You don't pay a guard nearly as much as a tackle, but you pay the, the quarterback the most. And the 100 is the quarterback position in track and field, true or false? Yeah. True. No, I I agree with that. And I think in terms of the people who are, we kind of live in a track and field bubble, so it's a little hard for us to gauge outside, in fact. But who are the athletes who are definitely more famous than Noah Lyles? In track and field, I would say there's only two that I'm saying for sure. Shakari Richardson and Elliot Kipchoge. I think they're both globally more known than he is. I don't know if, he might be three on that list. He's the reigning world champion in the 100 meters and the other thing is Noah Lyles will give you value back on your investment like in terms of promoting your brand and that sort of thing he is talking he is competing at a lot of meets he likes to race a lot he's running the world indoors where Shakari Richardson's not doing that and he'll get in front of a podium he'll speak his mind he made headlines after worlds he had the NBA champions comment world champions comment you know He's trying to get people to dress up for walk-ins. He'll be doing that. He wants to promote the sport. Like he views that as part of his job is making the sport more popular, make, making himself more popular. Cindy McLaughlin Lavroni may be a more talented athlete than her and than him in her event, but she has no interest in doing that. Same with the thing Mo. They just they don't really enjoy the spotlight. Noah loves the spotlight. So in terms of like who am I gonna pay? Well, it's an American who could win the 100 meters at the Olympics. That 
hasn't happened on the men's side since 2004, Justin Gatlin. Two, this guy could break Usain Bolt's world record. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I'm saying in the 200 meters, look at the improvements he's made in the 60 this year. The last time he made big jumps in the 60, he ends up running 19.31 American record at the World Championships in 2022. He's now running a lot faster in that event. So do I think he's going to run 19-1 this year? Probably not, but he's got the he's the best chance to do it of anyone running right now. The best chance to run 19-1 in 2024, that's Noah Lyles. And if he breaks Usain Bolt's 200-meter world record, that's a huge deal. You, you People are going to be talking about him. He'll go mainstream if he does that. So you've got a lot of potential, and you've got a guy who actually enjoys the part of the sport that involves, you know, talking to media, making headlines, putting himself in the spotlight, all those things. So I, I think, you know, when you add all that stuff together, I think it, you can argue he is, deserves to be the most paid, the highest paid athlete in the sport. It makes sense he'd be the highest paid, John. I'm not arguing with that. I just was, my point originally was this is not bolt money. And also you're signing him now, right? Now, so I assume it, you're taking away some of the risk. If he pulls off a double gold at the Olympics next year, his status is greatly enhanced. But then if you want to sign him, it would cost more money. So I assume he's getting a little more guaranteed money. There'll be less bonuses if he pulls off whatever he would have. And Lois, Noah's getting more of a guarantee through whenever the contract ends. Wait a minute. Every week, John has a segment. How worried are you, Robert, that he's going to win Olympic gold? This is actually a good sign for me. Is this a little bit of a sign that he's worried he's not going to win Olympic gold? Because if he was 100% confident he was going to dominate the 100 and 200, wouldn't he wait until the Olympics are ended and then go for like $8 million a year instead of $3 million a year? Because like he's set for life now. If you get a five-year deal at $3 million a year, that's $15 million. Plus, maybe his agent told him, that, look, look, that's like safety net for life. And then you know, if you do win gold, you'll get other outside deals you can do with Bryson and et cetera. But it is interesting to think about it that way. I've got to agree with, and I don't even want to cite this guy because he's angered me recent years, but I, I will cite him. Alan Abramson, he's got a column up, though, on his three-wire sports blog saying, Shakiri Richardson moves the needle more than Manolo Lyles. And, and I just think that's true. Like, you put something up on YouTube and Shakiri just, she's a mainstream. Now, I would not give Sherry Kerry Richardson, if I was a shoe company, a five-year deal through 2029 because I don't trust that she's going to stay disciplined and whatnot. But the column says, if you read this space regularly, you know that I teach at the University of Southern California. My students adore Sha'Carri. They think she totally got screwed out of the Tokyo Games because of that we thing. They love her speed, her style, her brashness, her F-U, I'm, I'm me attitude. Black, white, anyone, everyone, my students think Sha'Carri slays. They write unprompted columns about Shakiri. They do not write about Noah. Sorry, but that's the truth. Come on. How many college students do we think really even know who Shakiri Richardson really is? I, I think she d does. When I ask my you know, father-in-law, do you know who Noah Lyles is? So you know, usually Shakiri. Oh, yeah. I think, is that the one with the marijuana? You know, obviously this isn't some 20-year-old college kid. But our sport needs more deals like this. It still is, is if you're making, what'd you say, John, $3 million a year? I mean, that was one agent's guess. But if I had to ballpark, I would say probably two point five to $3 million a year annually. That would be my guess. 
got an article here from golf.com, reputable source. What do you guys think a top 30 player? Oh, no, excuse me. A top 10 player in the world makes for his hat deal. Just his hat? Um, 1.5 million, maybe? This article is a bit dated, six years old, so before inflation's kicked in. It was saying 3 million a year. If you're, t- if you're really marketable, close to eight figures. And any top 125 player, essentially with a tour card, 250 to 500 grand. Pretty crazy. <laughs> Just- Wait, you would get $250,000 for the hat sponsorship of like the 111th ranked golfer in the world? I mean, I guess if one of the, like, you know, if it's a lottery ticket and they end up contending in a major, you're getting significant airtime. But that, that doesn't seem like a smart investment. That doesn't either to me. That just shows you it's not people's money. It's like these corporate execs that just want to play in the program with a guy, have him show up. It's like these NIL deals that are not worth that. But back to Noah, I think it's great that he's put this out there because people think of him more of a star in the mainstream world. And good for him. He does promote the sport. He races all the time. We need more people like him. I mean, when I was mentioning all those names of people, you know, Americans that are more accomplished than him, I even forgot totally about Sydney. I mean, I think Mo totally forgot about her just because she never races. So, ironic thing is though, whatever he accomplishes this summer, if he does win the hundred and two hundred, he's going to have a swoosh on his singlet, and Nike's going to be laughing all the way to the bank. Well, that was actually one thing I forgot. Glad you mentioned that because the difference with the golfer is when he's coming down the runway at the Masters. You're seeing the logo the entire time. The runway at the Masters, excuse me, the green fairway at the Masters. Whereas with running, obviously Noah has his shoes, but are people staring at the shoes when he starts? It's a little bit different. But afterwards, it's up to Adidas to then take that, market it, and sort of make it front and center that Noah is an Adidas guy. It's not just necessarily the exposure while he's competing. So it's, it's a little bit different. And then that might be a reason why even though Noah could be the face of the Olympics, he's not going to get an endorsement deal of somebody else because the Olympics has massive, massive exposure. One last thing about this. I'm still stunned that in this day and age of NIL and how athletes are being exploited and we have to let them make all their money that somehow Noah Lyles is forced to wear a Nike singlet when he wins Olympic gold. Like I, I'm amazed that there's not like a lawsuit against like USATF or something saying we're not going to be required to wear these uniforms. Now, I know people say, well, you know, Patrick Mahomes is a Dennis athlete and he wears a Nike thing on his thing. That's different. He's an employee of the Kansas City Chiefs. That's their work uniform. Noah Lyles is not an employee of USATF. He's not an employee. They don't pay his salary. So I'm kind of surprised in this day and age of athletes' rights and stuff like that 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 aspect of things doesn't get struck down either through an act of Congress or through a lawsuit. It, it seems like, and I think in some other sports, is it gymnastics? You don't have to wear the same uniform as everybody else. Like you could easily all wear like the same uniform, but someone has an Under Armour logo, someone has a Adidas logo, someone has an Nike logo. It just seems, now that would decimate USATF's finances if it's ever happened, but it seems weird to me. I don't think it's going to happen, Robert. I mean, look at the World Cup. Soccer players, they all have to wear the 
sponsor of their national federation to run to compete at the world cup they've all got their own individual sponsors that's not their primary income is from their country it's from their club so not a, i haven't seen leo messi or cristiano ronaldo bring a lawsuit so my guess is it's probably not going to work it is sort of interesting because that's how usatf gets most of its revenue with the nike deal that that appears to not be indexed for inflation can someone on the board release this to the public every maybe i need to join USATF or rejoin after 20 years because the board doesn't, doesn't seem to be doing deal, due diligence or at least ask questions and answer the questions. Is that deal indexed for inflation? I mean, that's almost gross negligence if it's not. Um, but that provides most of the revenue. If each athlete could strike their own deal, it sort of would be like Noah Lyles would, would, would make more money. Some of the guys at the back would make very little. The money it would just it would just more would go to the top, the you know eighth place shot putter. Well, I guess they could get their own deal, but it 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 would be interesting to see if more money was in the sport overall or less. But how it got distributed would be differently. Who knows? But I don't think it's changing. All right, I want to move to the marathon and Osaka. I'm kind of surprised Robert didn't bring this to my attention because he's always interested in this. Japanese marathon stuff. It was quite a debut by Kyoto Hirabayashi. He's in his third year at Koku Gakuen University. He just turned 21 in December. He ran 206.18. Won the race. 21 years old. And I just like I I couldn't help but compare this to Americans because I'm like this is kind of like Nico Young or Graham Blanks. You know, their equivalent, one of their best guys. Both of those guys are 21 years old right now. I'm like, could I see them running a 206 marathon like ever in their lives? Probably not. If you look at the history of US distance running, I mean, Nico Young may be able to do it, but the only Americans who have ever run that fast, Galen Rupp, Khalid Kanuchi, Brian Hall. So it's pretty amazing to debut like that. But then I'm also like, Nico Young has already run faster this season, 737 for 3,000 and 1257 for 5,000. Those times are faster than the national records for Japan in both of those events by significant margins, by three seconds in the 3,000, then by 11 seconds in the 5,000. So... I don't know. I'm just kind of curious, like, Robert, what did you make of this performance? And do you think if the NCAA was as distance-focused, you know, they trained for the half marathon for the Ekadens in Japan, could we see an American, like, if every American in the NCAA system trained for the half marathon, would one of them pop off at 206, or is Japan just more suited for that event? When I first saw it, I was incredibly impressed. I thought it was a cool story, actually, when you read the details of it. They actually were he was extremely excited. I mean, you debut, it's a collegiate debut record, pumping his fist when he won. But when you actually read Brett Lorner's article on Japan Running News, they actually had pegged the pace faster because they needed to run 205.50 to be an Olympian, or 205.55. So he's, they were on that pace and then fell off. But it confirms, if it, the more I think about it, it just confirms what I've always thought. The Japanese, genetically, and probably culturally too, but they're better suited for the marathon. Everyone thinks it's just because they train for the marathon. No, I, I think that 
they're better at grinding out an even pace for longer distances, and they're worse at the mile in the 1500 than we are, 5,000. If you take a 2730 Japanese guy and a 20, your average 2730 American and have them run a marathon, I think that the 2730 Japanese guy is going to be better at it relatively than the marathon. But the opposite is also true. But I do push, I'm always hyping the Japanese depth. I mean, it's amazing, all these 28209 guys. But I've been pushing back on the forum recently. People say, oh, Japan's better than American at the marathon. I, most of the time, our top finisher, now, admittedly, some of those are born in Africa, finish higher than Japan's top finisher, both the men's and women's side at the Worlds and the Olympics. And that wouldn't surprise me if that's true this year as well. So should we really be that excited? 206, John. Do you know what the world record is? Two, two hours, 35, yeah. So four, four minutes in a marathon is 10 seconds a mile. This guy's almost 15 seconds a mile per mile off the world record. Certainly 10 seconds. So this is like this is like a guy running 13.10. So it's more an indictment of how bad Americans are. There should be a lot of Americans running certainly 207 because with the shoes, that's 209 back in the day. David Morris type times. So I, I do think that if American, if every collegiate trained for the marathon, I think we'd have a ton of ten, sub 210s. And I think we'd probably get a, some 207s. I don't know if we get 206.17, though. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you on that one. And the, I mean, this guy, I think he was more training for the half marathon. And then, you know, he's, this is carry, Brett said he's carrying it over from his Hako and Ekaden Fitness. You know, the Hako is right around New Year's. Um, obviously, they probably did some marathon specific stuff in the last few weeks. But I'm also curious like nico young i view nico young if there was a collegian who was going to be like a really good at the marathoner i think nico young is a prime candidate because until this year he wasn't really known for having a big kick and but like would he if he just got to nau and was training for half marathons and marathons the whole time would he run 206 as a collegian i'm not sure that he would but i think he's one of the few americans who would at least might have a chance to do it yeah, it's just impossible to say. It's just such a different culture, right? Nico Young was in a system where the marathon was just revered, and that was the thing you ultimately do. There was an opportunity to run it in college. You're running half marathons all the time. 206 isn't what it once was, but <laughs> what Americans are running recently, it's very hard. So I, the, the probability is no, and this was a Japanese debut and collegiate records though this is even rare in japan but when i saw this i'm like wait some japanese college kid just ran 206 how are the adult american pros not running 206 is pretty regularly these days because it, it, like random countries are now running 206 we have we have crazy amounts of people qualified for the tokyo olympics having run the i guess it's what 20810 but most of those are in the 207s, at least. Yeah, well, let me read off some of the names of men who have run in the 206s to unlock Olympic berths for their country. We've got Haimro Alame of Israel, Yaman Bahan Kripa of Italy, Samuel Sibatu of Germany, Zuhat Albi, Morocco, Stephen Makoka, South Africa, Ibrahim Hassan, Djibouti, Isaac Mpofu, Zimbabwe, 
Now, almost all of these athletes are born in Africa and now represent different countries. But Cohen Knott of Belgium, he's born and raised in Belgium, 206, 56. Uzbekistan has a 20702 guy. I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name. Ricard Ringer of Germany, 20705. Xiao Yang of China, 20709. There are a lot of what we might, as you know, cocky Americans describe as like sort of random countries running a lot faster than the top Americans these days. All right, people, we need to get to this Dakota Lindworm interview. I think we should have released it as a separate podcast or so. This wouldn't wouldn't be so long, but oh well. I, I wanted to mention a few other things. The Aikens ran one fifty nine twenty six last week on oversized track. So one fifty eight. Excuse me, one fifty eight twenty six. She would be the number three in the world if she was at World Indoors, but she's not going. So I don't know if it just wasn't enough races or if she was hurt from the fact that her shoe fell off. I thought that was a good sign. And she had diarrhea as well. Like she was sick that week, also. And I wanted to get into this, but we got to save it for another week. We'll link to it in the show notes. There's so many interesting things on the message board, including this one. Can we talk about Josh Kerr having four to five employees? Is that true? Does he really make enough money that he has four to five employees? And does he really need four to five employees as a middle distance runner, considering Dakota is actually an employee of a law firm and made the goddamn Olympics. Well, I talked to Josh about this at Milrose. I was asking follow-up questions because he's like, if I spend a million dollars, but I make a million dollars, like I'm the world champion, that's a good investment for me. I'm just like, are you spending a million dollars on these people? I don't think they're all full-time employees, Robert. Like if Josh Carr is paying someone to full-time manage his social media accounts, that's just a colossal waste of money. I'm sure these people are sort of, contract as he's paying them a little bit but i don't know i mean he i'm sure he gets way more media requests and is traveling a lot more it is nice to have someone to handle all that stuff um i guess he does he also has an agent ray flynn um but i don't know he's probably got more excessive than just showing up to meets and that sort of stuff so i can understand and then if you want to have a hire a private chef i imagine that's somewhat costly and i can understand why you want to do that you know, if you have the money to do it and they can make you healthy meals and that's time you're not spent cooking or worrying about that stuff, it's just taken care of. That seems like a wise investment to me. So yeah, I don't think he's paying four or five full-time salaries to these people, but he might be paying four or five different people to help manage things, and just take stress, take load off his plate. Well, you can check that out in the show notes. Link to that, link to my coaching column. Speaking of money, guys, this might have broken during the podcast. Sports money's problems are over. Michael Johnson and the Winners Alliance to create a fan-focused track league. Link to this story in, from Sportico, Sportico. It says, Winners Alliance claims it has already made the single largest investment in track and field history. Sounds impressive, but then it says just a seven-figure investment. So they're going to fund this thing. I don't know what that means. I've never heard of the Winners Alliance. John, have you heard of it? No. I mean, I, I would need to read this article before I can weigh in on it, but I will, I will just say this. Michael Johnson gets it. He's smart. He knows the business of track and field in and out. He knows what's popular and what's not. But 
we have seen many smart people try to make things work. I mean, Vin Lanana, I think, is one of the brightest minds in track and field. And how long did the track town summer series last? You know, they had Usain Bolt was behind this Nitro Athletics series in Australia. That never went anywhere. So I'd be interested to read the details behind it and what Michael has to say, because I think he is smart about this stuff. But I'm not going to get my hopes up until I read more details. So to the Winners Alliance, they're most known for representing the collective IP of athletes for group licensing. They work with the Professional Tennis Players Association and the International Cricketers Association. So it sounds like creating a, a series is different, but for, I think for the sport to actually succeed, you need someone investing millions of dollars. If it fails, it's on them, but it, they have the profit incentive to try to make it work. A lot of hurdles for this, but if Michael Johnson's involved, that's one positive. Good luck. We want, I want more money in the sport. If they can create a way for it's going to supposed to be more fan friendly. How many times have we heard that? Hopefully there's some distance running in this thing. One last thing, guys. I just did want to talk briefly about this 400 meter quote unquote world record that we saw at the SEC indoor meet. It was by Christopher Morales Williams, who is a 19 year old, runs for the University of Georgia, represents Canada. Big breakthrough for him. Last year, he ran 45-3 as an 18-year-old out, outdoors last year, which is pretty damn fast. He'd run 45-3 coming into this meet. And then he goes 44-49, which is the fastest indoor time ever. But it's not going to count as a world record because there were not the blocks. There was a problem with the blocks that to be ratified as a world record, they've got to be sort of electronic blocks hooked up to a start reaction time system for a sprint race. That was not the case at SECs. So if you remember, the second fastest time in indoor history, which is Michael Norman, 44-52, that was also never ratified as a world record. It's from the 2018 NCAA Championships. And I think that one was because he didn't take a drug test afterwards because it's not always standard at the NCAA level. It does sound like Morales Williams took a test in this case, but the blocks thing is a problem. I think we just, moving forward, you need to have these sort of blocks at SECs and NCAAs because those are the two meets in the NCAA where we could see a world record. Like the talent is just so good at those meets every year. I feel bad for the guy, but 19 years old, he's running 44, 49 indoors in an Olympic year. Um, he could be going on to even bigger and brighter things, but just feel like it's kind of ridiculous that it's 2024 and we're having what should be world records, not ratified for sort of these logistical issues. How good is SEC, by the way? When I was writing the world record article on him, it's like this guy didn't even make the finals of the SEC indoors or outdoors last year. Yet he dominated the Canadian Senior National Championships. And now he's a world record holder. Well, he's not the world record holder, but he should be. It shouldn't be a requirement. We have officials here. This meet is heavily officiated. The blocks have shown tons of problems. Free Devin Allen. Okay, folks. Check out the show notes. We've got the link to the Josh Kerr having four to five employees message board thread. We have a link to my coaching article. And we also have a link to an interview that I did with the Cuddle Inworms coach, Chris Lundstrom, who says she has a gift for the marathon. I'm going to play a clip from that interview here, and then we'll go straight to Dakota's talk with Jonathan Galt and myself. 
how do you explain Dakota's improvement? Uh, I mean, it's all on her of years of steady work and progress over time. And she, we knew early on that the marathon was where it was at for her, that uh, she had a gift uh, for, for the distance. And uh, I mean, she just was willing to do everything that she could, um, you know, decided out of college, I'm not gonna take that full-time job. I'm gonna go and try to pursue this dream. And, uh, you know, step by step, you know, she couldn't hang with our, kind of our, our, our women at the, at the beginning, but gradually over time, she just made progress and uh, she put everything into it. So uh, just uh, a great, great athlete. Welcome everyone to the Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast, where we are joined by a special guest. It's Dakota Lindwam. And after running PBs of 535 for 1600 and 1156, sorry, for 3200 meters in high school, Dakota was a walk-on at Northern State. She graduated as an All-American though, finishing sixth in the 10,000 meters at the NCAA Division II Championships in 2017. After graduation, Dakota joined the Minnesota Distance Elite Team in the Twin Cities. And in 2022, she picked up a pro sponsorship from Puma. She has twice won the Grandma's Marathon in her home state of Minnesota and owns a marathon personal best of 224.40 from the 2023 Chicago Marathon. Most recently, of course, she finished third at the 2024 US Olympic Marathon Trials in Orlando on February 3rd and will represent the US at the Olympic Games in Paris in August. It's one of the great underdog stories we have had in the sport of running the last few years. Dakota, thanks so much for joining the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. John, you undersold that introduction. One of the greatest underdog stories. To me, this is the greatest underdog story, certainly since the history of Let's Run was founded in 2000. So, I mean, you undersold her story at the beginning. You gra she graduated college with PRs of 520 in the mile, 1643 for 5,000, 3457 for 10,000, and now she's headed to the Olympics. Dakota, it's almost been three weeks. Have you been pinching yourself every day just to confirm that this is that your dreams have become reality? Like, has it set in that you're looking? Yeah, I literally just told my chiropractor yesterday, I'm like, I might wake up from a dream any day. I, I'm literally living my best dream. So it it doesn't feel like it's real yet. I mean, the motto for Let's Run was always where your dreams become reality. But I think in around 2010, I, I kind of was getting pessimistic about being out recruited all the time when I was coaching at Cornell. I was just like, no, for, for most people, it's where your dreams don't become reality or almost become reality. I mean, it still would have been a cool story if you were fifth at the trials, but you're third and headed to Paris. Yeah, I can't. I can believe it in the same sense. I can't believe it. It's it's incredible so what have you been up to since then i know you went on vacation the week afterwards like what's your life been like the last couple of weeks yeah yeah so i got away for a week which i still was working down in the dominican i was doing a couple of podcasts you know you gotta make hay while the sun's shining so i i jumped on a few podcasts but really just took a week off wasn't running or anything and then came back the monday after and i got back to my 40 hour a week paralegal job, got back to reality, and um, I picked up running a little bit, just kind of get back into it slowly since Paris is so long away. How many interviews have you done off to Orlando? Oh, gosh. 
uh, you have to guess, maybe between 15 to 20, maybe. I, I might be underselling it, to be honest. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, I'm sure you're very in demand, so we appreciate you um, making time for us. And I guess, Robert, I want to start in high school, because you, you have a really cool story to get to the point you've reached in the sport. And one of the things that was interesting about you is you you played hockey in high school. I don't think there were many people uh, in the Olympic marathon trials for whom that was true, but you're from Minnesota, so it makes sense. It's obviously a very popular sport. Like how long were you compete? How long did you compete in that sport for? Uh, I had started in the second grade and I finished uh, my senior year. So it was 10 years of playing hockey, all of which I was a goalie. Were you, were you good? Uh, yeah, I got recruited by a couple uh, Division three schools, like locally, um, but not not outstanding by any means. <laughs> oh, it's, okay. It's interesting though because you ran. So you ran, you know, cross country in college. Like, was that a decision you had to make? Like, were you debating between hockey and running as you moved on to college? Uh, not really. I I really was drawn to Northern because of, it was super affordable. Um, and I kind of liked the, the schools were local that I could have went and played hockey at. And I, I did want to get out of like Minnesota, not necessarily Minnesota, but just out of the city's area. Um, and at that point, I had kind of fallen out of love with hockey and really had fallen in love with hockey or with running. Just um, I kept seeing so much improvement year after year, of course. Not a ton of, you know, like I wasn't a phenom or anything, but I was setting PRs every year and I was just kind of like falling in love with the fact that I was working really hard and I was seeing that pay off, which isn't necessarily true in every team sport, I guess. Like I was still working hard at hockey, but uh, my team was one of the probably worst in the state and there was nothing I could do about that as a goalie. I could just stand on my end and do my job, but I had to rely on my teammates to do the other jobs. Yeah, was there a specific moment in your career where, you know, I, I've read that you long dreamed of being an Olympian, and I assume that be was started off as being an Olympian in hockey, and maybe at some point it became Olympian in running. Like, was there a specific point where that kind of transitioned and you realized, like, running's where I can make my dreams come true? Um. So, yeah, I, when I watched uh, Miracle when I was in middle school um, about the 1980 Olympic team, um, yeah, I looked at Jim Craig, the goalie, and I was like, that's what I was put on this earth to do i want to be an olympian um and then as i fell out, out of love with hockey i guess like i guess that olympic dream just kind of went by the wayside of course i didn't have like you know i was under no impression that graduating high school with a 535 was going to get me to the olympics so um even in college i'd say it wasn't something i was like you know of course i was dreaming of it but it wasn't realistic so let's take us to how did you get started in running? Was it high school? Was it before that? Um, it was in high school. My freshman year, I was, you know, the starting varsity goalie. And my mom saw me just have like a lot of really high highs with hockey, but like a lot of low lows. Like if we'd really lose a tough game, it would really have a big impact on me. And all my friends were hockey players. And she was just kind of like, hey, I think you should broaden your horizons great athletes are great at a lot of sports and if you pick up a different sport it'll probably help you in hockey and I was reluctant um but decided on running because I used to like beat the boys in the mile in like gym class so I was like I must be pretty good at this and uh, I started my freshman year and took last in a lot of JV meets and uh, I think that's where like my love came from was I was so horrible and terrible at it that I just like wanted to be better <laughs> 
Yeah, I was going through some of your high school results, and you know the last one I see on your athletic.net profile is the 2012, sorry, 2012 North Suburban Conference Championship. And it was a 4K race. You finished 18th overall. You're the number two runner on your team. I didn't see anything for the state meet or the state qualifying meet that year. Like, But you, you were in your team's top seven, right? So why didn't you run those meets? Oh, we never, we were never even close to qualifying for state okay. or anything. Um, that wasn't, was not a realistic goal for St. Francis for sure. <laughs> um, I mean, we would do okay at conference, but definitely we were not state contenders by any means. Oh, okay. It was, was there like a state qualifying meet or anything you ran or was that the loss? That was just the last one, your conference meet. Uh, there would have been, what do you call it in high school re- regions? There should have been, uh, you know, a meet for, but it's like, you know, whatever. It's similar to college where it's like the top three teams go to state. So you started with track your freshman year and then when did you pick up, you did cross country for the final three years? Is that right? Yeah. Yep. I just immediately kind of fell in love with like the team aspect and how you got to just go out for a run with your friends for like 20, 30 minutes after school. It was kind of like a nice decompression from the school day and uh, they all begged me to do cross country, so figured why not. <laughs> As a senior, you ran five thirty-five and eleven fifty-six. But do you remember what your times were in ninth, tenth, and eleventh grade? And like, how much were you running, like maybe mileage-wise, each of those years? I know that I broke six for the first time. I think my sophomore year. So I have no idea what I ran freshman year, and I'm <laughs> it's probably better I don't know. <laughs> um, mileage we were not keeping track i had just like a very basic timex watch if i had to put a number on it i'd probably say somewhere between 20 and 25 miles we weren't a super serious program i'd say definitely aimed more towards like enjoyment and making sure people are having fun rather than being super serious and you know when you graduate you make the decision to go to northern state which is in south dakota you walk onto the team um did you consider it all like just sort of focusing on studies or not continuing your running career? What made you want to continue running in college? Just the aspect of like I had been getting faster every year and I was kind of like, oh, well, if they're going to allow me to walk on and I can, again, have like that team aspect and like the community, I, I may as well. It's something I would be doing anyway. Like I'd, I'd pretty much fallen in love with running to the extent where I would have been just a hobby jogger at that point so i may as well do it with you know some other girls who have some similar goals and how'd you end up at northern state like why did you choose that program um they were i had a like my high school best friend one of her childhood friends was going to northern at that time and she just spoke really highly of it it's a super small campus and super affordable um you know i'm not i don't come from a very wealthy family so i knew i was going to be paying for it out of pocket and it just they had the degree i was looking for at that time and it made sense financially for me and you know you you continue improving uh like you said and you know by the end by the time you graduate you're an all-american on the track you're an all-american in cross country but you know, I'm looking, you look at those accomplishments. They don't scream like this woman is going to make the Olympics someday. So I guess I'm curious, like, do you think, why don't you think you were better in high school and college compared to, you know, some of the other people who made this team, Clayton Young, Connor Mance, Leonard Correa, they're all 
NCAA D1 champions, Emily Sisson, NCAA D1 champion. And, you know, you were a decent D2 runner. So why don't you think you were better in high school and college? Honestly, I don't feel like I took it super. I mean, I was serious, especially in college. Like I was doing all the little things. But I think because I wasn't super serious about it in high school, I was so diversified in like the sports I was doing, even, you know, like outside of school, I was playing um, tennis quite a bit. I was like biking a lot. Like I was so diversified in what I was doing that like it wasn't focused enough for me to be good in high school, I feel like. And um, I feel like in college is when it was like just starting to come together and like we were starting to see potential. But again, like not not enough to think I would be where I am now. But it just took some time for me to like build that fitness up, I suppose. I, I guess I don't have a perfect answer. I, I have no idea why I wasn't better in high, high school or college. Obviously, I wish I had been, but it led me to a pretty great place anyway. And looking at your times in college, I mean, it kind of looks like your freshman year was a little bit rough, 1930 in the 5,000 and really not many faster than, than you ran in high school. But then you kind of improved a decent amount, you know, pretty quickly, right? The, the next couple of years, like you were 17, 20, well, it looks like 18, 10 freshman year outdoors. But then the next year you, you went to 17, 22, 17, 07, 16, 43. I mean, was that just a pretty natural progression? Like you just did a little bit more, you just kept knocking a little bit more time off? Um, I'd say the biggest thing for me was I had a teammate who her name is Sasha Hopin. Um, she had the exact same PRs from high school as I did. And my sophomore year, she qualified for nationals in cross country. And we all drove down and watched her. And she ended up being an All-American that year. And I remember her like her, holding her trophy up and me being like, we have the same exact PRs. Like if she can do that, I I can do that too. And um, I think that's where like a big flip, like a switch flipped for me because I was like, okay, I'm just going to follow along with what's what she is doing. She kind of like paved the way for me. So I'd say she was a big reason why I saw a lot of improvement that second year. And then once you graduate, you know, again, do, do you consider quit, quitting at that, at that point? Or do you just think, oh, I'm, I'm still not done improving? You know, you keep, you, you had this progression. Like, is that why you wanted to continue post-collegiately? Uh, so when I had graduated, I immediately got an offer to teach in a local high school in South Dakota. And that was what I was going to do. And I was helping my college coach give a tour to a prospective athlete. And the parents of that athlete was like, well, what are you going to do? Like, you've had a pretty successful career here. Like, what's your post-collegiate intentions? And I was like, I'll train for marathons. Like, I, I had been running marathons in college in the summer, and I enjoyed it, but it wasn't serious or anything and my my college coach was like well you could definitely qualify for the olympic trials in the marathon and i was like hold on what does that mean how do i do that and i went in the next day with a pen and a notepad and i said tell me everything i need to know i want to do that um and a few months later i moved out to minneapolis here so i could train with minnesota distance elite so what was on that notepad like what were the things he was telling you about uh, he was telling me about, um, you know, then Team USA Minnesota, now Minnesota Distance Elite. He got me in contact with Chris Lundstrom and Pat Goodwin, who started the team. Uh, he told me, uh, like, I had no idea what uh, the qualifying time was, what pace that meant. So he gave me kind of all that information, showed me, like, the USATF website. I didn't know there were national championship races after college. I didn't understand what world champion champs were, like. I was so in the dark with all that stuff. I guess I wasn't like a, 
a huge track and field fan that way. So it was, I had a lot to learn for sure. Mm -hmm. But he had an inkling that you would make a good marathoner. Like, did you have that sense when you were in college that, hey, I'm I'm good at the 10K, but I could be great at the marathon? Uh, I don't know that I had the sense that I was going to, could be great at the marathon. I just thought like, oh, I'm really good at doing these long runs with the boys. Like I, um, you know, I'm really good friends with all my teammates now. And to hear them talk about how annoying I was to them, I would, you know, run with all the boys, like the men's team, I'd be pushing the long runs and they'd all be, you know, super upset about it and kind of getting their egos hurt. Um, of course now they're like, well, it makes sense. But at that time, they're like, who is this chick? Like, get her away from us. <laughs> so are you dropping them? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, but that's just like kind of the way I am even now, even on long runs with our men's team. Like I can I can hang with them. I can push the long run pretty simply. And it's, that's just my wheelhouse for sure. Now, you said you ran some marathons for fun in, in college. So what marathons were they and what were your times? Um, so they were trail marathons here um, up in Duluth. They have one called the Eugene Kernow Trail Marathon. And I stumbled upon it um, between my freshman and sophomore year. My college coach wanted me to run some summer races. And I was like, this looks really cool. So I signed up for that, uh, much to his dismay. But I told him I wouldn't race it. I think I ran like, oh, gosh, like four hours. But like when I'm saying trail marathon, I'm talking super technical, like hands and knees crawling up hills, like not certainly not running for most of it yeah i've I've actually got the results here three-time champion 2014 2015 2016 you're winning times 421 357 and 401 so that must have been a very tough course it's it's very very difficult but it's super beautiful um a lot of like rocks you're running over and stuff like that but um definitely a good intro into the marathon (laughs) Now I need to poke one hole into your into your story because because before we started you said that we John asked if, if you were a Let's Run fan. He said, "Yeah, I used to go to Let's Run on the forum all the time in college. I would put in every, whatever injury I had and then, you know, Let's Run and try to diagnose myself." But then you said you didn't know there was national championships. Well, I guess that means that you were a forum only person. You didn't you didn't co- you didn't go to the oh, front. Yeah. I don't even know if I knew there was a front page until after college. I was a forum only. Like if I, like you said, like if I had an injury, I was trying to search my symptoms. And then like if I did have whatever, we'll say tendonitis, I was trying to look for what other people found as solutions on Let's Run. Um, I definitely like it. I don't think I was like interested enough in running, I guess, at that point. And then like post-collegiately, I was like, oh, there's like a lot of really cool stories on this if you actually like look through the website um but i think it was just a lack of interest at that point to be fair we hadn't i don't think we'd hired the great jonathan gold back then so (laughs) homepage was spare well robbie you just gotta learn there are different kinds of let's run visitors you have forum only people you have homepage only people who just want the news they don't care about the forms then you got both so we we welcome visitors of all kinds to uh let's run.com uh, okay, so moving, you know, moving back to Minnesota out of college, do you have to, is this like you just kind of show up and you're on the team immediately? Do you have to talk Chris Lundstrom, your coach, into letting you on? How do you get on the Minnesota Distance Elite? Yeah, I would definitely say we had to smooth talk him to let, let me on. Um, he was totally fine with me coming here and training, but I came here like, again, kind of like, we'll say a quote unquote walk on. Um, I didn't have any of the benefits of being on the team. I, you know, didn't this, 
I didn't have like the shoe help or the financial help, the stipend. I just was like a training partner. I'd show up, Chris would coach me and that was it. Um, and it took me uh, a good like six months of being here before I was officially like a team member of Minnesota Distance Elite. Did you feel like you got along with him as a coach right away though? Or what was your relationship like uh, athlete coach? Yeah, it was immediate that we kind of clicked. Um, he's super level-headed. My college coach and him have like a very similar coaching style. So it it made a lot of sense for me. Um, I don't feel like I had a long period of time where I was like having to get used to his coaching. The only thing was like, he's very, very quiet. And if you have like a really good workout, he's just kind of like, yep, that was, that was pretty good. Um, but not like super enthusiastic about it. So that was the only thing I felt like I, I needed to learn about him is he was proud of me of without having to say it, I guess. Now, what, what about work? So you were going to be a teacher if you'd stayed, you know, back in uh, South Dakota, is that right? But were you teaching then and now you're a paralegal or did you find a new job? Like how does that work? And, and, and like, when do you guys practice? Cause most people I assume have full-time jobs. So how do you balance those two? Yeah. So when I first came out here, I was working in early child care centers, um, still teaching, just, you know, substitute teaching. So it was a little bit more flexible with time. Um, and then we're uh, on the pandemic, of course, that kind of got squashed and I moved into paralegal work after that. Just um, it's super flexible type work. But we do meet three times a week, Tuesdays, Fridays and Sundays, pretty early, usually around seven to you know, um, make it possible for people with jobs, but everybody who has full-time jobs has pretty, like, they have to be kind of flexible, obviously, to be a full-time runner. <laughs> you debuted in the marathon in 2019 at Grandma's, uh, 232. You didn't break 230 until your fifth marathon, but since then, you know, it's kind of what you were talking about in high school and college. You've continued to get better pretty much every year. You ran 225, eventually 224. Was there a race in there where you kind of felt like you had arrived as a marathoner? Yeah, it, you know, I think every time I PR'd, I was like, oh, I've made it, you know, and the world of running was just changing so much in those few years because there was a point when a 229 marathoner was pretty legit. And now we're kind of sitting in a world where that's kind of whatever. Um, so I'd say when I ran 229, I felt like that was pretty important and like you know there's something weird about breaking that 230 barrier it's just a number it's just one second difference but like to say 229 versus 230 felt like a big moment for me but then I quickly realized like 229 isn't what it used to be um so then probably for real like that 225 was a big turning point for me um because that was something I could say like okay I'm near the top 10 for American distance runners of all time um I've got, you know, PRs near the women I looked up to. Yeah, that's a pretty big leap. You win uh, Grandma's 2021, 229.04, and then come back the next year, repeat 225.01. You know, what goes into that four-minute improvement in that year? Um, A few things, I think. Like, I had just finally figured out the nutrition side. Be, I'm still pretty loosey-goosey with my nutrition, to be honest, but... I've got it more dialed in, um, where before I was just kind of like, I'll just throw some tailwind in a bottle and it'll be good. <laughs> um, but also I felt like I just underperformed uh, in my previous marathons. And then I'm going to just give a little shout out. I think the Puma shoes are 
really, really legit. So I think they helped me quite a bit more than the shoes I was running in before. What were you racing in before? Uh, the Nike, uh, not the Alpha Fly, whatever the other one is, Vaporfly. Yeah, gotcha. Wow. I'm going to go out and get, get myself some Pumas. But like, <laughs> I'm curious because, you know, you, you, the whole point, you had the spark to run post-collegially. It seemed like you just loved running and you're improving. And then the coach, but you were going to probably do it recreational, but then your college coach gets the trial sparked. But then your first marathon, 234, 232, you're, you're in the trials. I think you're, what, 36th in 2021? I think 37th. Telestopsia has it wrong or someone's been disqualified. Oh. They, they say 36th. Oh, that could be. I don't know. <laughs> Did, was it still at that point, just the, the process, you're enjoying it and you're getting faster? Or are you thinking, oh, I want to make the Olympics. I can make the Olympics. Uh, it feels so silly to say this, but yeah, I felt like I could make the Olympics. So um, I am, a, I'd say a big dreamer, a big believer in myself and I look back and think like, oh, that's pretty embarrassing to think like this 232 marathoner thought she could make the Olympics. But I mean, I think that a lot of people come up, they like leave a lot of potential on the table because they think their dream is embarrassing. And obviously it can pan out if you work hard enough. No, I think your story is proof that these dreams aren't embarrassing. In fact, more people yeah. can have them because uh, you, you proved it is possible to, to make it all the way and make it to the Olympics. So those that first trials, like, what was your mindset going in in 2020? Are you thinking you could make the team in that race? And like, what did you learn from that whole trials experience? Yeah, I wouldn't say it. Like, of course, I would go out on my runs and dream of making the team. But like, realistically, I wasn't like, oh, I'm, I'm a dark horse to make this team or anything. I felt like I was just there to enjoy it, like gain the experience that I needed. And I, I learned so much about racing from like that that race specifically how it goes out slow how you have to be tactical and tuck in and i i made a lot of mistakes during that race and i got to learn from them for sure what mistakes did you make i can so like vividly remember like the, there was a big group of us obviously but for some reason i ran real wide of everybody and like was taking the brunt of the wind for so so long um i can say i like there's photos of it i'm like what is this girl doing Sorry, my dogs are losing their mind over the mailman. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, classic rivalry there. What are your dog's names? Yeah. Uh, August and Pecos. Oh, okay. What, what is Pecos? What's the origin there? Uh, she's from Cabo, uh, Mexico, and Pecos means freckles in Spanish. Uh, okay. Interesting. How, how did you come across a dog from Mexico? It's it's actually my boyfriend's dog. His his dad uh, lives down there and they found her out in the desert and flew her home for my boyfriend. <laughs> oh, wow. So how does she like Minnesota? Um, she hates it. She hates going outside in the winter. <laughs> oh, really? She's a desert dog for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that was, that was 2020 trials and you learned to tuck in, which you, you know, you did a much better job of in Orlando, obviously. Um, 2023. So last year you run three marathons and you were 26th in Boston, 233, 53. You were the 11th American in that race. Then you were second in Grandma's, 226, 56, second American, and 12th in Chicago, 224, 40, personal best, fifth American. So, you know, based on that, we, you know, we had a preview before the race and we kind of listed, 
hey, here are the favorites that we think can make the team, and then here are some dark horses. And you just snuck into our dark horse because again, two twenty four. I saw it. I saw it. Okay, yeah. <laughs> wait. When you see that article, are you are you offended? Or are you like, hey, this is about where I should be? What are your thoughts? Um, of course, like I can. I saw the reasoning. Like, like I can understand why you guys thought that. But you guys also don't see my day to day training, so it's like I I knew where I was at. A little bit of me was like, okay, like uh, I can't wait to prove them wrong, but. Like understandable completely for sure. Hey, here's your opportunity. You want to dunk on us? You you did prove us wrong. So you know you can say what you want to say. Um, no, but John, I'll, I'll take I'll take full blame for that. I I wrote that. I think I had you tenth out of the eleven long shots. So that would have been that means you were sixteenth or sixteenth most likely person to make the team. But it did hit me a few days before. I think we had our what our big six. Like we th- we thought if these women run their best we don't see any of the long shots winning. And that was, you know, Emily Sitz and Sarah Hall, D'Amato, Sana, uh, et cetera. But it, it kind of hit us a few days before the race. We we're like, wait, there's a number of question marks about some of these women. We didn't think Sarah Hall was going to be great in the heat. And um, Seidel got hurt. And, you know, so like, are you paying attention to that? What the big people are doing? Like, cause it kind of hit us from a mathematical standpoint. We're like, well, there's a decent chance, at least like probably close to 30% chance that someone from this other list makes it to give you hope. Or do you, is that just a waste of time to worry about things like that? I'm certainly looking at it because like, yeah, of course we know the history of, you know, Sarah not loving to run in the heat. So I'm thinking about that. Like, okay, here's somebody who might be a little bit weaker or Alephine being super open and honest, which I love about saying, I don't feel great. Um, I think it's just more knowledge is more power. So I'm certainly like reading into what people are posting or not posting. If they've been extra quiet, you're kind of like, ooh, that's a little suspicious, you know? And it's certain thing, certainly things that we talk about as a team for sure. And are you thinking like, oh man, it's kind of a bummer that they're not running or that sort of thing or they're not as fit, but it also like boosts my chances. Like how do you take that news personally? Yeah, it's like a double-edged sword. Like I want to, I want to beat the best and that means the best have to race like i of course would have loved to see emma bates molly out there um but also yeah obviously it increases my chances and i just got to control what i can control and you know have the best day for me on that day so the, the reason i was reading off your results in 2023 is just i would say if people just look at those those results you know, you were beaten by a number of America- americans in two big marathons and people wouldn't naturally assume okay she's going to go from that to finishing third and beating pretty much everyone in the country in Orlando. So what changed for you to go from the 11th American in Boston, the fifth American in Chicago to third uh, less than a year later? Well, I do think one thing about me is like, I'm a very strong heat runner. So I think just where everybody kind of faded because of the warmth, I felt like I could hang on a little bit longer and fight through that. I don't really feel affected by the warmth typically. And then, I think I just gained a lot of confidence in in my training. Um, I just knew I was doing workouts that, like, if I follow, like, I follow Kira D'Amato, I was like, oh, I'm doing, like, a similar workout that she does. And she was the American record holder. I think it just, like, gives me confidence when my workouts are going really well and just felt like I was probably doing as good of workouts as anybody else who was training. So all the hullabaloo about the start time of the trials, are you – were you hoping it would stay at noon or did you have an opinion on that? I 
right away, I was just kind of like, leave it as it is. Like, I don't like this drama. I don't want them to back out. And like, we should just be grateful somebody wants to host us. Um, and then when I got down there, I thought it was even more silly because there were some days in Florida where it was like 40 degrees in the morning and like the high was 50. It wasn't going to matter what time the race was on. It was just going to matter what day it felt on. It was either going to be hot or cold. It wasn't, I don't know. It, it to me all just felt very silly because it's a, the weather is a common denominator. We all have to deal with that. Um, and, you know, we can all prepare for it in our own ways. We had plenty of time to know it was going to be warm and that it was going to be in Orlando. Was it warm when you would run grandma's? Because that's a summer race, but it's also, you know, pretty far north. Yeah, I would not say it's a typically a uh, warm race at all. Um, there was one year that it maybe ended in like at the 60, at 65 degrees, but it's not typically warm it, up in Duluth. So you talked about, you know, if other people are being quiet, there's something suspicious. Well, we weren't following you. And what were you doing in the buildup? Were you posting positive messages on Strava or Instagram or were you laying low? What were you doing? Well, if you follow me on Strava, you would know, like I, I post my splits. I post my workouts. I don't delete anything off of there. So I would say you would have known based on my Strava that it was going well. And then like I did one podcast before with the grandma's marathon and I let them know like it, I, I have no fear in saying like, Oh, things are going really well for sure. Oh yeah. I listened to that one actually to prepare for this. And it was because a listener sent it in. It's like, if you listen to this podcast, you'd be like, of course it makes sense. She makes the team. Like she's acting so confident and everything. She knew she was ready to go. So I thought that was interesting. Um, the, then the other thing, you know, I went through some of your Strava stuff and, one of the lines you have in your bio is uh, T Swift lyrics only. So I take it you're a Swifty. Like when did it? When did this tradition start of putting lyrics in your, uh, you know, your run entries, that sort of thing, and why? Yeah, I went to her concert when it was in Minneapolis here last summer, and after the concert, it was just like um, just natural to put a couple lyrics in here or there, and then all of a sudden I was like, you know what? This is way more interesting than putting like morning run. So I just. I don't know. It kind of happened after I saw her in concert and like was just always listening to her music. And do you just know like immediately, oh, this run, this lyric supply, or are you Googling to like look up lyrics to add in? What is the, how does it work naming a run? Um, I'd say it's about 50 50 there sometimes where I'm like, this lyric is perfect. Or like maybe um, I'll hear a song and be like, oh, this is going to be a good lyric for this day or whatever. I knew like I was going to name that title, like my race, One Day You Will Be Remembered. Because um, I had heard that song earlier that week. and like, oh, that'd be a good race title. But sometimes I just like open Spotify and hit Taylor Swift and see whatever song comes up first. And I find a lyric that like doesn't make people think I'm going to like break up with my boyfriend or something wild because sometimes they're obviously a little dramatic <laughs> yeah that's what i was curious about like do you do you have an issue like if you had a bad day of running you would have to do something a little moodier or was your build-up so good that you didn't really have to worry about that i didn't feel like i had to worry about that honestly when i look back at that build-up um there's not one single workout that i think like oh i wish i had gone a lot better um or that i wish i could have done again that one that that build-up was by far like i if no build-up is perfect but that one was near perfect what do you think was your best workout? Oh, I would say um, we did three by three mile at LT pace. 
And I think I did everything right around 510 or a little faster. Um, or we did uh, 16 miles at marathon pace that I finished right around 510. Um, one of those two would have to be my best. You've never officially broken five for the mile, but you've done it in practice. So what's the, what's the unofficial mile PB? And same thing with 5K. You don't even have a, your 5K PB is still your 1640 from college. So have you ever split that faster in a half marathon or something like that? Um, I think my like official, I don't know what my official mile PR would be, but yeah, I, it's definitely from a practice of like four fifties or something. But, um, my 5k PR, I have actually run this on the track during the tracksmith. I've run like 1601 a few times. Um, and we do a workout where it's, uh, the Deke, 400 that's a pr pretty familiar workout where you do one 400 at 5k pace and then a 200 float and you do 5k of it um and i've gotten that down to 1601 also but never officially broken 16 um but i'm putting that on my bucket list for this build up to paris for sure okay i was gonna ask about that because there's some there's part of a badge of honor type thing like saying i've never officially broken five in a mile and i've never officially broken 16 and i still made the olympics but then there's other part that's like well, I know I can definitely do this. I'm going to get under. So you, you're sort of in the ladder camp. You want to improve that PB. Yeah, there's at this point, it's just been like a longstanding joke. Like the last like three years, I've run close to sub 16, like three or four times. So it's kind of like, OK, I just need to like lean a little bit at the finish line at this point. So definitely um, have a 5K on the calendar and then just want to just check that off the list so I can stop dealing with that. <laughs> Will you have any other races between now and Paris? Yeah, I'm um, certainly going to do the half marathon at grandma's. Just can't miss a weekend going up there. I'd be going up there anyway. So it's like, why not throw the half in? It's a perfect tune up. Good timing. What do you love about that race so much? Oh, what's there not to love? Um, I think I, for the marathon anyway, it's like so quiet and calm in the beginning that I think it really keeps you um, in check. Sometimes I think with like Boston, New York, it's so wild and so chaotic in the beginning that you can go out faster than you intend. Um, and then it builds as you go. It, it gets louder. There's more spectators as you go where you need it more. And then it's just like finishing in this like cute little small town. And after the race, it's it's unlike like New York. Like when you finish a marathon in New York, other people are like, there was a race today. <laughs> like what, what was going on? Um, where downtown Duluth is like, everybody is there celebrating you or somebody that they know, or maybe they ran themselves. It's, um, just a fun little community for sure. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I think it's cool how you have that connection is still going back. I'm sure you, you'll probably be the most popular person in town this summer, actually, now that you're going to Paris, you know? I don't know. Kara, Kara Goucher is always up there too. She's pretty popular for Duluth. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta go pick up my son soon. So I want to, I want to get a few questions about the actual race. I mean, the build-up is better than ever. You're running more than ever. I talked to your coach, Chris Lundstrom, after the trials. He said, you know, we did a not as many workouts, but the harder workouts were better. So you're, you're super confident. And you know, you've been waiting four years for this day. And, he, and I asked him, he said, you wanted to go out with the lead pack, you go out with the lead pack, but then it sort of starts to, you know, like take me, take me through your mindset of the second half. I mean, the pack starts to, to window down. I, th I think Kira D'Amato fell off, but then there's a move made. You're not in the top three. Like just sort of 
take me up through mile 20 in your mind, like what's going on? Start halfway mile 20. Yeah. Um, so I'd say like the big shift happened oh, when we were like just about to start that third loop and uh, Fiona took off and like no disrespect to her, obviously, like at that time I was like, nope, that's not going to last like rookie mistake. Uh, but obviously she's just an absolute gamer. She's going to be an American great. And she held on. Um, and then, you know, Emily kind of went with her and we had a group of women try to like go with Emily. And I just. I feel like it, I don't know it exactly the paces, but I would say it was in the low 520s. And I just didn't feel like that was in my wheelhouse at that moment. And uh, Lando before the race was like, if, you know, at with 10K to go, if you're not in third, it's okay. It's a marathon. Like we all know that big things happen in that last 10K. So like stay level headed. Don't count yourself out. Like don't just drop out because you're not in the top three at, you know, 23 or whatever. Um, and obviously that really paid off because I wasn't in the top three going into that last lap. And I remember being like, there goes the team. The team is ahead of me. I'm not a part of it. Like, it's just not going to be the day I was hoping for. Um, but then Carolyn Rotich came up behind me and she gave me some really great words of encouragement. Pushed like she was like, let's work together. This isn't over. Let's catch them. They're falling back. And she ended up just like flat out passing me. We hardly worked together. But um she just kind of gave me what I needed and I really just maintained pace and that group of women just were, they weren't able to hold the pace that Emily had set. And, um, you know, and I passed, you know, like Sarah and Betsy and had to fight it out with Carolyn for those last couple of miles. And at some point I finally heard somebody say three seconds back. And then I was, that was like the first time I was like, Oh my gosh, like I'm in third and I have a, a lead. Like I have a gap. Um, and then I heard like seven seconds back, 15 seconds back. And that was with, I don't know, t- two miles to go, maybe less. And then what's it like? I mean, do you have friends and family on the course and you call them Lundo? Is Lundo going nuts? I mean, I don't think I could control myself. <laughs> I was coaching. Yeah. Like I said, mentioned earlier, he's super like, like those first two laps, he was like looking good. Things look great. Good running, like super calm, controlled. And then that last lap when I was in third coming past him, because he was out by the airport where it was a little bit quieter. I think his like voice was gone. He was screaming so intensely, which I hear very, very rarely from him. So I was like, oh, like I felt so much pride for him. And I wanted it to do it so deeply for him and for Minnesota Distance Elite, because like not too many people know who Chris Lundstrom is, but they should. He's like a, a great coach. And not too many people know who Minnesota Distance Elite is, but like we we're out here. We're working really hard. We've got Annie Frisbee and Joel Reichow. And um, I wanted to do that for them as well. Yeah, we, we did it. I did an interview with him after the race. I'll link to it in the show notes, but it was great. And his advice was perfect. He said, you know, not everyone who goes with the, with the move should go with the move. And I told her to have a measured response and, you know, it, it ended up, you know, working, you know, amazingly well, but you know, did, did you realize, I, I mean, you said the heat doesn't affect you, but you were even you started to slow down. I think you had one mile over six minutes. Like, did you realize, oh, I'm barely on the edge, or was it just the fact that you knew you were putting, or you're not worried because you were getting it farther ahead of Caroline? Um, you know, obviously, you don't want to finish the marathon with your slowest mile. Um, it's hard to know. Uh, if somebody had been there, maybe I could have had a response and could have picked it up, but I was like, 
nobody ahead of me. I couldn't see Emily. I couldn't see uh, the only thing I had was a lead vehicle. So I do felt I do remember being like, oh, like I have to try to keep myself in. And we were passing some of the men who are having, you know, not their best days. And I was just trying to key in off them. But when it's out in a marathon, like to not have anybody ahead of you, it's it's tough to keep pushing to keep your pace up and your cadence high. But um, I do feel like if I had somebody you know, come up on me. I felt like I had enough to give, but it wasn't, you know, wasn't desirable to slow down that much. Were you aware of your splits? Like, and how much you were slowing down towards the end of the race? I mean, everyone was slowing down pretty much, but were you aware of how much you were slowing down? Yeah, I was splitting each mile on my watch and I would look, but when, you know, at some point you're like, whatever it tells me isn't going to be helpful information for what I need right now. Like, I don't need to see that I'm slowing down to know I'm slowing down. Um, and I was trying to, I mean, I was trying to push for sure, but there's only so much you can do at mile 25. <laughs> so w- w- when do you realize I've got this? Um, I felt pretty confident, like when I heard like seven seconds back and then 15 seconds back. But the whole time I was like, you are not going to be one of those people who is starting to celebrate too early and then gets caught at the finish line. I just kind of wanted to make sure like I was within a few steps before I gave a gup celebration because I just you just don't want to be that person that would be so embarrassing (laughs) no it's interesting I was watching the race back and I'm like when is she going to celebrate like she's so far in front and it was only in the first couple the final couple steps but your celebration was great like I was like that is how I would celebrate if I made an Olympic team and you're saying (laughs) yeah so I thought it was really cool yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm somebody who just in general kind of wears their heart on their sleeves, especially in running. Like, I feel like it's such an easy way for me to be vulnerable and emotional and people can really connect when you when you really show them how you're feeling like that. So I was having the time of my life and I wanted to pe- let people know I was. What did you do when you crossed the line? What were you thinking? Um, I When I crossed the line, I went, what? <laughs> like, I couldn't believe that this was happening to me and then of course I got to you know hug Fiona and Emily Sisson and my agent was there who uh Howie management signed me when I should not have been signed I was like a 230 marathoner um they had no reason to really take a bet on me like that and so I got to celebrate with um John from Howie management and just feel like oh like what a great moment for them because they they took a bet a shot on me when I was you know an okay marathoner so you have a full-time job, you know, as a paralegal, but a deal with Puma, but I'm assuming kind of it's a minor deal, but does it have a big Olympic bonus in it? Like I hope an escalator. Or... I do just sign with Puma for sure. I don't uh, necessarily need the job financially. I just, um, I'm somebody who, if there's nothing to do, I'm going to find something to do. Um, I tried the pro runner life where you just kind of sit around and watch TV all day and just doesn't really vibe with me. I have a hard time just relaxing. So full I'm full-time paralegal requires me to be at my desk full-time. So between runs, I'm sitting for, you know, six, seven hours. And I think that works better for me rather than just kind of having to fill the day. So is that something you'll, you'll continue doing full-time until like the whole spring and summer until the Olympics? Or would you back off like the month beforehand and sort of go into running a little bit more? Just because of like the insane amount of travel that I have coming up over the next, you know, six months, I am going half time um, and then I'll go back to full time after the Olympics. But um, 
I would be having to ask for days off like almost every other week. So it just made sense to move to part-time for the next six months. So what was that like? I mean, I know most of your work's remote, but occasionally you go into the office, but the vacation the week after the trials, when you come back in, Hey, how was your vacation? Like, I mean, I'm assuming everybody knew, right? (laughs) Or did you, or did they? They were super excited for me. And, um, the named partner Brooks of Brooks Cameron and Hipsch, when when I was in my interview with him, he looked me in the eyes and said, well, what are we going to do when you go to Paris? What are you going to do when you make the Olympics? How are we going to figure that out for your job? And every time somebody new walks into that office, he goes, this is Dakota Lindworm. She's our paralegal. She's going to make the 2024 Olympics. Like he's one of those people who just puts it out there. Power of positive thinking. Um, completely supportive. They were so excited for me. Um, they're incredible. Uh, he's not just him. All my attorneys are super supportive, but he was specifically super supportive. Well, that's cool. All right, guys. Unfortunately, the real world is calling me to pick up my son at school. John, I'll let you finish it up. It'll be fun though, because I won't know the end of the interview, but it's been great talking to you. This is the first ever Dreams Become Reality podcast and it's a true story. So Keep dreaming, everybody. Well, it's nice to meet you. Thanks for, yeah, it was cool. Congratulations. So what are you going to do in Paris? Like, do you have a good, res- like, what will be a good result for you in the Olympic marathon? Um, I don't think top 10 is out of the question. It's going to be hot. It's a super challenging course. Um, I would really love to sneak into that top 10. I, you know, it's, of course, it's the best athletes in the world, but it's a very limited number of athletes also. So um, I think that's possible for sure. What do you make of that monster hill in the middle of the course? It makes training weird. Uh, Coach Lundo and I have been talking about it a little bit. Like, uh, you know, so much of the course is flat that you do have to train for that. But like there's that like three mile long hill. Um, I get to go out to Paris in April. Puma's flying us out for a course preview. So once I get eyes on it, I think we'll have a better idea of how to train for it. But Right now, it's just like, uh, you know, I think next week I'm going to start just setting the tread, go on the treadmill and set it to like 4% for four miles in the middle of my easy runs. Yeah, it feels like it's a unique feature to replicate like an, or an outdoor run. Like, do you have anything like that around you in the Twin Cities or do you think you'd have to replicate it on the treadmill? I think we would have to replicate such a long hill on the treadmill. Um, I live in, thankfully, a fairly hilly area if I choose to run that way. Um, but nothing. I mean, who has like a three mile long hill near them? That's unless you're at altitude near a mountain. That's a pretty tough one to replicate. Yeah, for sure. Do you consider yourself a good hill runner? Um, I wouldn't say it's like I I prefer a flat course. I, I'm a really metronomic runner, but um, I can I can do well on hills for sure. Grandma's, for example, everybody thinks it's flat, but it's incredibly rolling. It's undulating the entire time. Um, so I think I can do well as long as I'm training for it. That's really Lendo's coaching styles. I feel like he gets you ready for the race that you're trying to get ready for, um, not just kind of doing bland training. I mean, I'm always interested in like the, time conversions between some of these marathons like robert well he's always like boston people shouldn't be getting a time conversion on that thing it's downhill and like grandma's is a net downhill you've run grandma's a bunch but you've also run like boston chicago you know, a bunch of other ones how does grandma's compare to chicago like is there should there be a time conversion for those races in my opinion i think chicago's an easier course um grandma's is 
like I said, you're never running flat. It's always up. It's always down. Granted, nothing super aggressive, but um, to me, in my mind, flat is going to be faster, um, especially like Grandma's has a, a quite sig- a pretty significant hill at like 20. Oh, I should know this, like 21 lemon drop. It's not really that crazy for that, that time in a marathon. It, it's hurtful for sure. <laughs> Just like the hill in Chicago, the hill in Chicago is hurtful <laughs> right at the end. <laughs> That's right. Um, what about the last two weeks? Like what's the coolest thing that's happened to you as a result of making the Olympic team? I guess apart from actually making the team and knowing you're going to be running at the Olympics. I think the coolest thing was the night after, like, or the night of, I went out, we were kind of just bar hopping a little bit, celebrating, and we walked into this bar and, um, I was told Des and Kara were out back. So I, I walked out onto the patio and when I did, like they stood up and they were like, just in shock and on, they were like celebrating me so heavily. And I was like, you are two women that I look up to so greatly. And like, I can't even believe, you know, my name, um, that felt like such a, like, oh my gosh, moment for me. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like you gotta, you gotta get used to it because you're going to be going down. You're like Brian Sell, you know, you're the Brian Sell of the 2020s in terms of the small school who made it happen on the big stage. And now you're going to the Olympics. Like, people will tell your story and is, has that sunk in that you're going to be remembered? You know, you will be remembered. Like you said in the, the lyrics, you know? Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny just today. I was like realizing that there have not been very many, Amer- like very many marathon, um, like women's marathon at the Olympics. It's not, it's a fairly new event. And I like, so I was like, I'm going to do the math quick. It's, I can't remember how many years of it there have been, but, there's only been 42 qualifiers for American women at the Olympics and the marathon. I was like, I'm one of 42. That that is so mind blowing to me, and I'm I'm super happy that I'm a story that people can tell, especially the like high school athletes, because I think we leave a lot of potential on the table um, by not thinking that you're you know fast enough when you're young, for sure. Yeah, pa- Paris will be the 40th anniversary because the first one was 1984, LA, Joe Benoit Samuelson winning the gold. There's actually a great book about it. Um, we had the author on a few weeks ago, Stephen Lane, uh, about that first women's Olympic marathon. Because it is kind of crazy that it took so long for that event to become part of the Olympic program. And now it's just like, well, of course, um, you know, women can run the marathon and run well. And it's actually the cool thing about this year essentially every Olympics until now, the final event of the games had been the men's marathon, the final day. This time, the women are the final day. So the spot, like, has that, what are your thoughts on that being the final event of the Olympic games on the final day? I'm, I'm super excited for that. I think it gives me to like, I really wanted to be a part of the opening ceremony. So the longer I have to, from that until uh, the marathon is great. Cause I know it's a lot of time on your feet, but I love that they're highlighting um, women especially after we had been, you know, having to sit on the sidelines for so long. What will you do in between the opening ceremonies and the games? Because that's a long time. Like, are you going to be in the village the whole time or would you be somewhere else? Uh, no, I, I think I'll be, you know, I don't, it's funny. I have no idea what the like logistics of um, like the, the Olympics are. <laughs> I don't know what standards. I, I do need to reach out to a few people and just see. Uh, I know my boyfriend wants to be out there the whole time. So I think we'll get an Airbnb or a hotel, ideally. I don't think I want to spend the whole time in the village. Um, and I'll, I'll, be wor- I'll be working, for sure. 
Okay, the one other thing I wanted to ask, like, you've made the Olympics. That's one of the big goals for every runner, you know, reaches a certain level. What other goals do you have remaining in the sport? It's funny because I, I feel like I climbed this big peak and now it's now I have to look around and find out what what's the next mountain I want to climb. I think being top 10 at the Olympics is really important. And, of course, then repeating this in four years and and making another Olympic team. But along the way, I want to be consistently making world championship teams also. I think that's um, something I have uh, been alluded of. Like I, I was the alternative for this, for Budapest. And I just want to be, I want to be one of the people who makes the team for sure. And what about like world marathon majors? Is it top five? Is it podium? Is it winning? Like, do you have any dreams for those? Yeah. I mean, right now, I think the, more digestible goal is that I need to crack the top 10. I was um, not that I was 11th at Chicago. So like that's, that's step one. But yeah, I need, I want to be a top American at a world major. I want to, you know, place high there for sure. And majors like New York, you just never know what's going to happen there. Yeah, no, we've, we've seen that many times with the previous generation of American women, uh, a lot of mm-hmm. surprising results, but a lot of great results in that. So, um, well, Dakota, you've been very generous with your time uh, for us this afternoon. So thank you so much for talking to us and telling us about your story. And obviously, congratulations on the result in Orlando. But it was uh, it was wonderful to have you on the show. And uh, best of luck in Paris this summer. Yeah, thanks so much for having me.